It's Tuesday morning, August 10th. Thanks for downloading or live streaming Real Talk. Ryan Jesperson here with you alongside Sarah Hoyle, Samuel Brooks. This episode is presented by our title sponsor, the team at Bitcoin Well, now officially the world's first publicly traded Bitcoin ATM company. Huge congratulations to them. The year will will continue to get bigger and bigger in the context of this business's growth when they move to a fancy new location. What you need to know right now as crypto becomes more and more relevant, maybe not to you personally yet, or maybe it's a huge deal to you. Either way, the team at Bitcoin Well is ready right now to take your questions, help you figure it all out, even set you up with a Bitcoin wallet. They did that for me. Gosh, is it ever sexy stainless? I got this fireproof thing. I'm not allowed to tell you anything more about it, though. The team at Bitcoin Well can explain why. You'll find them under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Coming up in uh, about 10 minutes time-ish, we're going to check in with Eleanor Sunchild. She's the lawyer for Colton Bushy's family. You, I mean, can you wrap your mind around the fact it's yesterday marked the five-year mark um, since uh, everything went absolutely sideways uh, on August 9th of 2016. 22-year-old by the name of Colton Bushy was with uh, four other friends they drove onto a, a farmer's property, Gerald Stanley's property near bigger Saskatchewan. Uh, and that's when Colton Bushy was shot and killed. You'll remember Mr. Stanley was charged with second degree murder. He was tried about three years ago and he was acquitted by a jury. And that's when Colton Bushy's family filed a public complaint. Uh, Debbie Baptiste, Colton's mom, spoke at length oftentimes to media about how she was informed about her son's death, how she was treated in the early stages of that investigation and an internal RCMP review was not kind to the law enforcement officers that first investigated that case. We're going to talk to Ms. Sunchild uh, from the Thunderchild First Nation. She's an indigenous lawyer that's represented uh, Colton Bushy's mother, Debbie Baptiste in court. And I'm sure that she'll have some interesting insight. I'm, I mean, these are some of the interviews where you're not exactly quite sure where they're going to go, because, of course, we'll talk about this specific circumstance and the tragedy around this story. But I, I suspect the conversation will broaden in scope. That's coming up in just a few minutes. A little later on in the show, uh, more Albertans are talking right now, I think, and people across Canada that are paying attention to Alberta's health measures about syphilis and in part, I mean, let me just say people should be talking about it because there's been an outbreak and it's a real issue and it affects people, uh, including expectant mothers. Uh, this is prompted, though, by a note and, and an op-ed, they call it an opinion editorial. Remember this release, we'll call, we'll call it a bit of a public address from Alberta's chief medical officer of health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, a number of days ago, describing or explaining why she felt that it was time and why she had advised the provincial government that it was time to kind of move on from some of the more prominent COVID restrictions, probably more accurate to say virtually all of the COVID restrictions. And Dr. Dina Hinshaw noted a couple of things in the release and basically said, hey, listen, now we can pay more attention to stuff like 
syphilis and the opioid epidemic. And, and it gave producer Sarah Hoyles an idea. So we're going to be talking to Dr. Amita Singh, who's a syphilis researcher uh, out of the University of Alberta. That's coming up in approximately, we'll say about 45 minutes time. And we'll take a look at that IPCC report that everybody's talking about with global warming getting worse. Scientists around the world, climate scientists are saying that it's time for urgent action. What does that actually mean in our own backyard? What are some of the specifics that scientists are talking about? The Boston Globe did a great job yesterday of laying out kind of seven steps that people need to be ready to consider. And we're going to take a look at this. This is the type of story that lands and and then our team, our editorial team gets to work on finding different angles on how this will be relevant to our listening audience and our tuning audience that, that joins us across Canada. And uh, of course, as we've told you before, which is really exciting for us from 60 countries around the world. Now, some of these countries, there's like three people joining us from these countries, but they still resonate. They still represent. We still, still get to put counts. we get to put the pin in the map on the wall, if you know what I mean. So a shout out to people that, that tune in and join us from we, we see you. We see you with regards to the web traffic, uh, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, China, Japan, Costa Rica, El Salvador. Maybe that's part in, in part due to our, our Bitcoin affiliation. Ooh. I'm not quite sure. I think that might be why think the president's listening in. Well, you never know. Have we put in that interview request yet? We got to get that yet. one done. Yeah. Hey, Prez. Yeah. Get the president of El Salvador on the show. Now that we've put it out into the universe, you got to make sure that oh, that happens. Damn it. No pressure, Hoyles. Well, I've got some emails in front of me. And of course, we've got a lot of uh, other things to review. Whether or not you're from Edmonton, Alberta, of course, which is the, our hometown, the city, at least where we where we live right now, where we're running this show, where we're broadcasting from, so to speak, from broadcast to podcast out of Edmonton, Alberta. The Edmonton Police Service on TikTok as well. And we're going to show you a video a little bit later on in the show. Uh, For those of you tuning in on the podcast, I would say we'll talk you through it and explain what it's like. But I suspect you've already seen it because it's making the rounds. If you're on social media, you've probably seen this this Edmonton police officer. He busts out of. uh, Well, can we just show it? Can we roll it once just to show everybody, Sam? Here's what we're talking about. And then we'll really dig into it. Just oils is already shaking her head. Do we have it ready to rock? All right. Here's the video we're talking about. Okay, let me explain what's going on for the benefit of our listeners. Uh, this is a TikTok video. It says when you get a text from your wife that somebody's at home to pick up your daughter for a date and uh, an Edmonton police officer comes busting out of what is it? Is it like a district office or something like that? I think so. It's got the big crest above kind of, the door. It's got yeah. the big crest above the door. So it's clearly a police station. And he comes out, to, of course, to the, to the audio from the WWE, the legend, Stone Cold Steve Austin, uh, who is big on crushing beers, kicking ass, taking names, all that kind of stuff. And uh, and so the police officer comes out and he's got two cans. You know, it clearly labels on the video. This is water, not beer. Crushes two cans, gets into his Ford Explorer Cruiser, lights up the cherries, gets the lights going and squeals off home. And uh, and some people (laughs) I haven't seen anybody that's like totally like I haven't seen anybody like flipping their lid about it. I've seen people flipping their lids about a couple other things this morning. Danielle Smith has an uh, op-ed out in, I think it's in the National Post, if I remember correctly, about carbon capture and storage, which has been interesting. I see a bunch of people piling on Danielle Smith for that. I see some other people ticked off about a couple of other things. The, the Edmonton Police video, people seem to be a little bit more just like, like, 
okay. That's kind of the reaction I have so far. I've never, I haven't seen, I, I, there are probably some angles that we could dig in on this and actually make it very serious. Um, not everything in life needs to be totally serious. Some things can be just fun and silly, but also some things that are put out as, I can't wait to see your eyebrows are just, your eyebrows are almost hitting the ceiling tiles right now, Hoyles. Um, some things that are intended to be lighthearted and fun and silly can actually uh, land in a different way. Would you like the floor? Uh, me? <laughs> what was your thought when you first saw that video? Um, I thought, wow, guys, uh, your job is to, you know, protect the people and do, do your job. It's not to make TikTok videos. Well, your job is to engage with the community, too, right? And to be relevant and, and to, to have platforms where people feel like like they can engage. Like, so the Edmonton police, you're not going to have a good to listen to me, the expert on TikTok. <laughs> I, love I think it. I, I think I have like tell 40, me more. I think I have like 40 TikTok. I've never posted one yet, but I signed up. I think we have like 40 or 50 followers. But uh, but, you know, you've got you're not going to have a, a strong TikTok with lots of followers and good engagement if your videos are boring. And so they do this like there's an Instagram account from a police uh, department in uh, in Iceland that I follow. Don't understand a word of what they're saying about anything, but they're there and their Instagram has thousands and thousands of followers because it's entertaining and kind of funny and a little more lighthearted, even though I'm sure they attend to fatal car crashes and suicides and domestic violence and, and all of the problems that law enforcement encounters. So, um, you know, I, I have mixed feelings on this one. Hmm. Can I say that the one thing I'm a little surprised at is I get the spirit of and, and let me say this. Let me again reiterate. Not everything needs to be serious. Not everything needs to cause controversy. Not everything needs to piss everybody off all the time. I will say the theme of the idea around dating a cop's daughter and then bigger picture, widening the focus a little bit. The thought of the whole like father protective over the daughter thing. Um, which I understand to a certain degree. I mean, it could be father, son, too. It could be any parent and, and, and any child. Don't mess with my kid at all. But the whole idea of like the dad on the front porch with the shotgun while the boy comes to take the girl out for a date is just, to me, that's a little bit... Uh, dated? Well, maybe dated. I was actually going to invoke the supercharged word in this Ooh. context, which is toxic. Uh, oh, yeah. Lots right? of toxic masculinity yeah, mixed but, in there for good measure. Yeah, but at the, you know, and at the same time, though, uh, can I devil's advocate a little bit here? Like the whole idea of toxic masculinity, which I don't scoff at or write off. Um, at the same time, policing's probably a little bit different. You know, there's people say, like, look at these kind of bro-y attitudes with, you know, police officers or, or firefighters or that for that matter, professional athletes. And uh, and you can certainly get into. I think productive conversations around culture and locker rooms and things like that. And then I also think that there's a certain reality of when you're the one, like when you're the first one in, when there's a firearms complaint, the, the, and you know, things like having people with you. And I think that there are certain mindsets where the whole, uh, you know, let me put this, put it this way. Civilians can't always relate. So I think there's probably a lot going on. Is it safe to say there's a lot going on in the video? I'm not surprised. People don't really know what to make of it. I, I, I just I don't understand why that needs that needs to be put out there. Yeah, fair. That's a that's a very fair and reasonable comment. I just I I think we have better things to be focused on and doing. And yes, a TikTok. I yeah I believe that um, public engagement is vital and important. But you know, let's get police officers out in their beats, meeting people, getting to know people instead of 
slapping up a video about crushing beer water. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I can see it. I can see different uh, points get out of, of your helicopters, out of your police uh, tanks. And but that's kind of what they're doing here. That is what they're doing here. Because you know, if they will go crush some skulls of, well, if, of teenage boys, we'll know if they, yeah, well, which is also fair, which is also <laughs> fair, Hoyles. Uh, and it's a valid point. But you know what? If the police department were just to be like uh, on their TikTok, like, this is us on the firing range, this is our new SWAT vehicle, this is our new chopper, then everyone would be like, oh, look at the you know, boys and their weapons. And, uh, you know what I mean? Like, I, th- I, can see, toys, yeah. I can see how they are trying to be. They probably had, first of all, first of all, probably didn't spend too much time thinking about it right we're probably we've probably spent more time talking about it here than they did in putting it together i think they probably thought that it was a way to kind of reach people and in, in a way that was like a little bit unexpected and somewhat lighthearted. they probably overlooked a couple areas of concern uh but also maybe like i said not everything needs to be so 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 serious all the time i think we've touched on a lot of points here i'm just popping in on the live chat i can see it is humming this morning <laughs> which is great for the most engaged audience in the country escher says i mean it's a funny video nothing more yeesh ab says i don't know cops can take themselves too seriously i don't mind it meantime chelsea says the bro culture in the police force is why they think a tiktok like that would be funny to everyone exactly i already want to take this question back before i ask it does it require, I mean, whatever this bro culture is, like what, what bro culture is, I think that it sort of is somewhat self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. But do you need a little bro culture running through the veins of people that are going to walk up to a house, a suspected drug house with a battering ram, not knowing who's on the other side of the door and what they might have no. with them and no. to knock the door down and come in and tackle somebody and put them in cuffs and carry them out while they're spitting and screaming at you. And like, we have no idea. We have no idea. I'm not saying perpetuate so-called bro culture. I'd, I'd like to know, first of all, what that would represent before I endorse it. But I do think you need to have a little bit of ice running through your veins to be that in that type of calling, in that type of vocation. You're shaking your head. Are you serious? I am serious. I think that you need to come to that job with intention and you need to come to that job uh, with uh, an awareness of the, and maybe I'm going to sound super snowflakey here. I, I wear my snowflake with pride. The idea that you need to know what the st- systemic problems are, why that person ended up there. Of course, Sarah. Of course, but sometimes you got to go like, knock. I'm gonna go no, Sarah, sometimes you got to go kick in the fucking door and get him in handcuffs. Like, like, of course, we need to talk about systemic problems. And of course, like, absolutely. A hundred percent. Look at the content on the show. Look at who we talk to. Look at the look at the avenues we explore and the, look who we're about to talk to. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, I think like we're fooling ourselves if we think that there's not some sort of that you got to be wired a little bit differently to, to do the types of things that these officers do. Sam, what do you think? I guess, like, why is that the part of the job you want to show off? You know what I mean? It's like, it, it, it's, policing is a complex job and when done well, connects to the community on levels that they can relate to. And totally. I'm most, most cops are very good at that part of their job and they strive to be good at that part of the job. But the thing that you're putting out to the public to say, hey, look, the police are here and they're your, they're, your, they're friends and they're your protectors is this video of, you know, basically 
teeing up a scenario where some teenage boy is going to get his face punched in. Like, and I, mean, I do agree with you on what that. What they're insinuating there is just like there's so much more to the job that they could be showing off. The amount of times that they actually show up and battering ram in a door is like the tiniest fraction of what their actual job is. So why is that the public image we want to put forward? Yeah, sure. And then on the flip side, they might say, and that's a great point. And on the flip side, they, they might say, yeah, it was like one TikTok video, you guys. Right? Which is also a decent point. Right? I mean, I guess they could, they probably will. Do. I, I'm it just be, takes I'm be one, honest. though. I've it not just checked. takes one. Yeah. Is like there something? one, one, mm, one pussy grab? Like, that's all it takes. What? What? <laughs> What I'm saying is that like it one is enough. It doesn't like just to be like, oh, it's just one video. I just I disagree. Yeah. It is it is showing so much more. And this is where people are like, oh, it's just enough. like it doesn't matter. No big deal. It's like, what does it how does it what does it how does it inform the bigger picture? Yeah, and then they might go, It's TikTok. Like it's TikTok, everybody. And, and and maybe this will get their TikTok shut down and maybe they won't do any more videos. Tracy says, holy crap, it's a joke. Says it's a joke about a dad and his daughter dating. Everybody needs to lighten up. Ytrium says the video is sexist as hell. Lalazaz says it proves to me that police officers aren't funny. <laughs> Scott says the police's job is to protect property, not to protect people. James says police everywhere need to be able to relate to people. And this helps. Lisa says, this is what I expected my ex would have done. There's a reason he's my ex and my daughter won't talk to him. Hmm. Terry says, I'm totally fine with them making TikTok videos, but this was a huge miss. Brenda says, police are ordinary people like us. He could be on his break when he did this. Fatima says, shout out to Fatima, by the way. I met her in person at the Ayla Brooks show. Cool. What was it? A couple of weeks ago now? Yeah. Week or week or two ago. So cool to meet her and her sister. Love meeting real talkers in person. Fatima says they failed of all the content they could have created to engage the community. Wigwith says cops are, are all over TikTok. This isn't the only video that could be pulled up. Some random guy says it's just one TikTok video, but you've now amplified it on an international podcast. So... Escher says, what father is actually going to punch out some teenage boy? I mean, come on. We could get into that. You know what that reminds me of? We, we, we have guests. I'm, I'm, I'm disrespecting our first guest. We got to get moving on. We can come back to this. But, yeah. but I will say this. Why am I drawing a blank on her name? I feel terrible. Was it Emily? We talked about purity culture in, in, the, in the American churches. Emily Jo Allison, was that her name? Am I remembering correctly? I hope I'm right on that. Gosh, was that a Emily Joy. Emily Joy Allison, yes. right? Perfect. Thanks, Sam. Uh, great conversation. But but that's kind of the idea. I mean, I could really blow the doors off this conversation. We should of, of the whole like father daughter dances and purity dances. And hey, listen, like on some level, I'm not trying to take a big steamer on a bunch of people's wonderful family traditions. And this is not questioning your love for your daughter or your son or anything special like that. But but there are kind of these undertones of of the dad sitting on the front porch with the shotgun while the girl gets picked up by the boyfriend and it is kind of a weird this this is that was kind of the under well not even the undertone it's the overtone of the video that that was kind of the one that i was like but hey it's edgy it's got us talking we'll get back to this i suspect we're gonna get some emails on this which i look forward to uh talk at ryanjesperson.com i promise like I've done my entire career, I promise I won't just pick the ones that agree with me. If you want to take a big run at me in the emails, and by the way, I'll be able to tell if it's you typing them, Poils. So 
<laughs> but if it's audience what? members, if it's audience members, we'll be able to get into that a little bit later on in the show. We wanted to take a second um, to remind you. I know for for a lot of people, this past year has been. I mean, when it's come to your studies, a lot of people, almost everybody, moved online. Right in the last year and a half or so, and and for a lot of learning institutions, not taking a big swipe at them, but they had to pivot as fast as they could, and it meant for a lot of online infrastructure etc was really rushed that's not the case with athabasca athabasca u is canada's online university they've been doing this for ages best practices already in place it means that they were well equipped to take on new students and serve their existing student body from across the country at athabascau.ca as the rest of your life eases back to in person you're learning doesn't have to you can check out different programs and courses learn about the admissions process even find out generally speaking how does au work at athabascau.ca also big shout out to our team at local waste i just got a great email this morning did you see me hammering away with a furrowed brow looking all serious i got an email from jake at kubi energy he said hey we're moving into new digs they're they're moving into a new location says we're going to need garbage and recycling he said can you put me directly in touch with the team at Local Waste? I Get said, out of town. I said, can I put the title sponsor of Positive Reflections in touch with the title sponsor of, of Trash Talk? Yeah, I can do that. And so now Jake and Mikkel and Chris are talking, and thank God they've taken me out of the email thread. I don't need to be lit up like that, but it's just another example of how this Real Talk community works. I don't know who should get this spot. Is it Kubi Energy? Is it Local Waste? Can we just remind you? At kubienergy.ca and at localwaste.ca, you can find different solutions for sustainable solar net zero initiatives, as well as proper recycling. A great partnership, unofficially, coming together thanks to Real Talk, Kubi Energy, and Local Waste. As mentioned, an impossibly difficult day for a family and friends in Saskatchewan. Five years ago yesterday, on August 9th, 2016, Colton Bushy was killed by a gunshot uh, when he and four others were on the property of a farmer, uh, a property near Bigger Saskatchewan. That farmer, Gerald Stanley, who was charged with second-degree murder, uh, acquitted by a jury after his trial in 2018. Eleanor Sunchild has represented Colton Bushy's family through the process. An indigenous lawyer from the Thunderchild First Nation, uh, kind enough to join us this morning. Ms. Sunchild, thank you so much for your time. The, yesterday, I would imagine an extremely difficult day uh, for Mr. Bushy's family. Did you have an opportunity to, to check in with them? If so, what did they tell you? Yeah, we actually had an event in Saskatoon we had um, like a short press conference just to give an update on the family. And then after the media left, we uh, held um, a private memorial and vigil with the family to provide support for uh, his mom, Debbie, of course, who had a very difficult day yesterday. Uh, Colton's sisters, his brothers, his uncle and his family. So it was actually a really a really nice day. A lot of people came out and showed support for them. There's a lot of love surrounding the family. There's a lot of love for Colton because of who he was. So it was a it was a good day. There's never going to be. I mean, when you're when you're talking to the parents of of a child who's been killed, um, especially in a circumstance like this, I don't suspect that you're ever going to have a parent say that they believe that there's been true justice. That, that, that their normalcy has been restored in, in any way. It's, it's virtually impossible. 
in a case like this, from the very beginning stages of the investigation all the way through to the verdict and beyond, I think that Canadians uh, have come to understand, uh, including by way of this internal RCMP investigation, that there were many, many different layers of injustice. Can you describe where uh, Ms. Baptiste is, where Colton's mom is now on that? Is Does she have the sense that that, that internal investigation provided some form of justice in this circumstance, or is, or is there still the sense of, of much uh, left undone at this point? Well, the CRC... CRCC finding of uh, discrimination against her was just a small piece of the whole entire narrative. And there's so much more that needs to come out. So, uh, yeah, you're right there. There's just a whole lot of of justice that needs to be done. Um, More work needs to be done on this file. Uh, The family does not have a sense of sense of closure they do not have a sense that justice was served. So it, we're still pushing for the public inquiry. Oh, OK, so I was just going to ask you what what the family wants to see done. Why don't we start with that? Uh, what steps have been taken or what's standing in the way of a public inquiry at this point? Well, basically the government, because the government has the power to order a public inquiry. The federal government has the power to order a royal commission uh, we'd like to see both, but of course the, the decision rests with the powers that be and they, uh, our Saskatchewan government does not want to open this file. They, they consider it closed and done. We don't consider it closed and finished by any means. There are, there are a lot of factors at play that I would imagine might cause a government or, or an elected leader to be skittish. Uh, around touching this, aren't there? I mean, this was a hot issue. It remains a hot issue in the province of Saskatchewan and across the country. Can you detail that through your perspective? Well, the South Party's main electorate is a is a white rural farmer. And I don't think that they want to, uh, to like, as you said, open it because of that basis. Uh, Alberta's probably much the same. But the fact is that, um, like I like to talk about actually what happened in the in the trial, the facts that came out, because there's been so much information, misinformation, so much discrimination and racism directed towards Colton and his family throughout this process that it's really important that people know that Colton was sleeping in the back seat of that vehicle when Gerald Stanley started shooting, shooting his gun. At that point, the two indigenous men in the front ran away. Uh, and actually they were in the front, they ran and that's when Gerald Stanley started shooting. Um, at that point, Colton must've woke up, jumped in the front to try to drive away. And moments later he was shot in the back of the head. So I I think that people forget that Colton was sleeping. Again, Colton had no criminal record. Colton was not in a gang. He was a a good person, but like I didn't meet him, but I haven't heard one negative thing about him by the people who knew him. He was a, a a really kind person from all accounts. He 
was a traditional helper at our ceremonies. He was always there to volunteer. He was taking his safety tickets. He wanted to be a firefighter. He had he had a good future, and that was taken from him. Eleanor, there. I, I think that most people. I don't want to take any anything for granted when I say that. I think most people are familiar with this case, and so I, I certainly appreciate your insight into some of these details. I, I think it's been well documented that that uh, Colton's mom, um, Debbie Baptiste, the way that she was treated uh, early in this investigation by police officers was deplorable. Uh, and uh, in my mind, I'm not sure. I'd be curious for your take on whether or not you believe the RCMP has acknowledged that in as fulsome fashion as you'd like to see. Uh, but when you talk about racism through the trial, uh, in particular, what are you talking about? Well, there were there were. I, I encourage everybody to. There's a documentary. It's called "We Will Stand Up." I encourage everybody to see that because that really tells uh, a good account of what happened. But for example. There were terms that were used in the trial that that probably should not have been allowed, such as uh, like your home is your castle, alluding to castle law, which is not a law in Canada. It has no place in our Canadian Canadian legal system or Canadian courts. Uh, Just just the whole if you if you were there, you would see how. Uh, there was one narrative, oh, these Indigenous youth were, were drinking, they were drinking so much, they had so much to drink that day. And then you had hardworking Jerry, Gerald Stanley, who was fencing and, and the ter- just the terms that were, that were allowed to be used. And we've seen that spread into social media. It became, uh, you know, this, the, the drunken Indian, the thieving Indian versus the hardworking farmer. And and when it comes down to it, it was a young Indigenous man in the back of a vehicle who got shot in the back of the head. Like, to me, it's not, it's either you, you create a narrative to support and justify something. But then the other hand, if you think about really what happened, it's a terrible truth. It's interesting here. You talk about language uh, used in court and, uh, and, and, and even, and not maybe specifically stated you're, you're invoking the word castle is really interesting. Um, and then the idea, I think the undertones, uh, you know, as you describe Colton through two different lenses, as he might be presented or represented uh, by, you know, Mr. Stanley's defense team, versus prosecutors actually on a side note may i ask you do you believe that the case was well prosecuted i've seen uh you know i've seen i've seen better prosecutions if you read the cross-examination of gerald stanley there were many questions that should have and could have been asked like if it was an accident how come uh, when the police came, why didn't you tell them? Like if I had killed somebody and the police came to my property, I would be standing there saying, oh my goodness, oh my, I can't believe that I did this. I can't believe that I shot this person. It's an accident. I'm so sorry. Here's the gun. But you know, there was nothing like that. This family called 911. Then they went inside and they said that they had coffee for an hour and a half while Colton lay outside. Like, who does that? It just, there's so many questions that should have been asked and weren't that's one example i wanted to ask you about language in in the court and and, and bigger picture i mean I'll, 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 i i want to i think some some background here is uh 
is uh, relevant. I mean, people would be interested to know you graduated from the Faculty of Law, University of Alberta. Um, you obtained a BA in political science, studied French immersion at Faculty Saint Jean. Um, you're 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 a, a much sought after voice, um, relating to your knowledge of the former Indian residential school system, the '60s scoop, the resistance. Uh, the present day impact on indigenous peoples. Uh, uh, it's okay with you if I broaden our conversation. I mean, uh, no disrespect to Mr. Bushi or to his family, but in the bigger picture, I mean, a pretty high profile trial in Alberta, um, you know, following the, the murder of Cindy Gladue and, and Bradley Barton was found guilty of manslaughter in that death. Some of the language in that court. I mean, even I mean, the, the, there were some appalling. I don't have to get into all of it. There were some appalling realities in that trial. Uh, including disrespect to her remains or body parts of her body used as evidence. But there were even slip ups, as you well know, in that trial, uh, referring to her, you know, language slips instead of victim saying the suspect. I mean, there were there were slight little things, but they were big things and they kept happening. And, and I'm curious yourself as an indigenous lawyer with regards to the bigger picture of what you see in Canadian courtrooms. Can I ask for your comment on that? With I mean, the entire country right now seems to be having a conversation on reconciliation. What does that look like in the context of our judicial system? Well, all, all of that is systemic racism or just racism. Um, all of the language, uh, the derogatory terms towards Indigenous women, Indigenous victims, uh, That that is what... Uh, is the basis of systemic racism. So it's it's not surprising. I have been a lawyer, as you said, for a long time. I've been a lawyer for uh, 22 years and, and I've seen systemic racism uh, in my career, but I have never seen such a blatant, blatant instance myself of systemic racism as, as I did in the case of the killing of Colton Bushy, right from the, the RCMP press release that stated they were investigating, <clears throat> sorry, they were investigating a theft-related property where a life was lost uh, as opposed to a murder. That's how they phrased it. Right until the Saskatchewan government refused to appeal appeal the verdict, but, but they let the family know an hour and a half before they had a press conference knowing that the family was at least three hours away. So, so the family couldn't get there. Family couldn't organize to respond. You know, it was just that sort of uh, disrespect that I seen throughout this trial, not just how um, the case was handled, but also how the family was treated. It was just, it was blatant and it was terrible to watch and it's terrible to talk about you know I have to practice in the Battlefords I have to practice in this province I'm a Queen's Council I like being a lawyer but I really don't like the racism that I see and that's why I choose to stand up against it how has how has Colton's death impacted I mean if, if you look back in conversation with the family and that community um, their extended circle, you might say. Uh, how has his death impacted what, what I assume is hundreds of people five years later? It's still, uh, it's still as raw as it was five years ago. Hmm. Every Indigenous person in, in our area, but I would suggest in the country, 
uh, remembers the killing of Colton, but they also remember the moment that the verdict was read and the moment that they learned that Gerald Stanley was acquitted. Uh, people always come up and tell me, oh, I remember what I was doing the moment of the verdict. I can't believe that that happened. I can't believe that that I seen that injustice. I've just felt so uh, so disrespected, so terrible. And, and those moments, Colton will live in the memories of everybody in Canada, even around the world. You know, I met someone from Nigeria a couple weeks ago and he, we were talking about uh, systemic racism because this person was of color. And he said, oh, I remember, I remember reading about Colton Bushy. So it, it really is a worldwide issue of systemic racism and and everybody knows Colton and everybody uh, stands, Indigenous people anyway, most of them stand with the Bushy family. There was so much love, so much support sent to Debbie yesterday uh, and it really helped her get through the day. Yesterday was International Day of the World's Indigenous Peoples. It was, I think, it was 2018, wasn't it? That that Debbie and and a, a couple of Colton's uncles, I think, spoke, had an opportunity to address the United Nations in New York City. I'm not sure if you were there or not, Eleanor. But but what sort of an impact did that have on the family? Did they feel like that there was some meaningful action from that, or that they had a, a, a an audience that was intent on receiving their message and, and potentially even taking action on it in an international context? Yeah, I was I was there with the family. I actually had organized that trip through the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations in Saskatchewan. So they gave us their their seat to go. And it was uh, it was uh, if you watch the movie, you'll see it was surreal because uh, we were 37th on the list to speak. And they had got to number 34 when they closed the day. At that point, Debbie stood up holding Colton's picture and and crying because she wanted the world to to speak, to hear her. So the the um, the U.N. had closed the floor. But when they seen what what was going on with Debbie and the family and realized who we were, they opened up the proceedings and Debbie got actually was Jade, Jade Tatusis, Colton's sister, who spoke and the whole delegation stood up. Another role uh, at the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues was that delegates were not allowed to stand. But the whole, like, basically the whole auditorium stood and came and stood behind the family. It was such a powerful moment. Um, and we really felt supported, supported by the world, by the world's Indigenous people. Uh, the advocacy will continue. It was paused during COVID, of course. Uh, we had some trips scheduled to New Zealand, to Australia. Uh, we were supposed to go back to the United Nations, but of course, everything was was put on hold. So we will continue with that. Um, it's an issue that's not going to, to go away. We're going to keep pushing because Colton deserves it. Mm-hmm. Eleanor, I... Uh- before we launched this show uh, about nine months ago, I uh, had a, a talk radio show on the AM dial with a, a largely rural audience. And we would talk about stories. Uh, Colton Bushy's death was one of them. 
And uh, even we would go so far back. I remember talking about you may remember environmental activist Weibo Ludwig. I'm not I'm not trying to compare stories. I'm not trying to compare families tragedies here, but I want to get to a point about dynamics in communities. A young girl, I think she was 15 or 16 years old, was killed by a gun allegedly fired by by uh, Weibo Ludwig on his property. Um, and, and there were many instances people can look at stories out of out of Airdrie, Alberta. I remember a firearms prosecution there re- related to uh, a rural landowner. And I would get these when I would talk about these stories or when I would conduct these interviews. Like if you and I were chatting, Eleanor, um, the text line that was in front of me would be lighting up with messages from people. A lot of them would, would be rural landowners and the majority of them would would probably be white. And a lot of them would probably be farmers and a lot of them would probably relate to Gerald Stanley, to be quite honest with you. And what I could not ignore uh, was message after message after message from people saying rural crime is a huge issue. They would say I would do the exact same thing if people come on my property, this, that and the other. I mean, there, there would be comment after comment after comment like that. And a lot of these comments, especially following uh, the tragedy uh, that Debbie Baptiste and her family experienced with, with, with Colton's death, a lot of people would specifically spell out tension between themselves as property owners and indigenous communities, First Nations nearby. Do you, with an intimate understanding of this case and aware, uh, you're, you're hyper aware of the dynamic here, what you describe as the systemic racism that, that, that not just the Bushi family or the Baptiste family or yourself have experienced, but systemic issues. Are you concerned that this exact scenario or something similar to it could happen again and again? across the country right now okay so let's talk about that it has um for example uh i know there's a case before the alberta courts has a publication ban on it right now but um that's concerning those two metis hunters in northern alberta that, that was something similar um i have i met this group of of women, indigenous women who are walking across Saskatchewan and Alberta with water. So they're doing a water ceremony and there's like 10 of them there. There's like, and they're basically cookums and supporters. Uh, when they were walking through a certain part of Alberta, uh, they walked by a farm and someone at the farm fired 13 shots in the air to scare them. So it tells me that that there's still uh, this problem in rural, in the rural parts. And it really shouldn't be like that. I think that like there needs to be more dialogue, you know, here in Saskatchewan, uh, there really is, hasn't been like uh, a mingling between indigenous people and rural farmers. Like, like, for example, I'll tell you this story following the Gerald Stanley acquittal, the RCMP had a series of town meetings, rural town meetings, and one of them was in Purdue. So we decided to go crash it. <laughs> and um, there was about five of us Indigenous people in that room in this town hall meeting, and the white farmers were getting very upset. They're like, oh, yeah, we would do exactly what Gerald Stanley did, and and we're really scared. We're really fearful. And then I was, I came in late because I had court that day in Saskatoon. So I came in late and I was sitting in the back with these white farmers. Um, but, but 
I'll just say this. I was raised in the 60s scoop. I was raised by white farmers for a period of my life. So I'm not like I'm comfortable with them because I that's how I grew up. Right. So they were sitting there and they were saying, oh, I was sitting in the middle and they're saying, oh, yeah, just let them try to come on our property, you know, let them see what's coming. And I, I just said to them, I said, hey, look, you can see me sitting here. Are you telling me that? When my son, he would have been, what, seven then, I said, are you telling me when my son, you know, gets his drivers when he's 16 and if he's driving around uh, Purdue or bigger and goes into your yard, if he runs out of gas, you're going to shoot him? And I just asked them point blank and they said, "Uh, well, no, no, we would never hurt your son. We would never do that. We would help him. You know, we're, we're, we'd, we'd. We'd make sure that he got what he needed and was safe. I said, well, okay, then quit talking like that because, because you're, you're just spreading more hatred and you're, you're fear mongering and this has to stop. By the end of that meeting, uh, we had like these, these group of non-native white farmers like lined up to talk to us, all five of us, just to say, hi, thank you for coming. It's really nice to meet you. There needs to be like, and the government needs to step in here too and, and stop the fear mongering, um, create dialogue between indigenous people and non-indigenous and the rural folk, because really that's all it takes. Like just people just need to meet and, and the rural farmers need to realize that indigenous people are not, are not scary. Like we're very, we're a nice people. We're kind. If, if they had met Colton, they would see how kind he was, but it's just like, it becomes this mob mentality where people just believe, you know, uh, natives are going to hurt them. They're going to steal their property. They're going to, you know, create crime and they should be weary of that and afraid. And they really like, it takes one, one, one bad apple in any culture, white or native, to create that fear. So I think people just need to, to talk and, and diffuse the situation. And that's where the government could step in and assist. I, I mean, you're, you're talking about something so basic and so obvious, okay. right? And so doable, and your your anecdote about about hearing that attitude and confronting the attitude and then ultimately, you know, creating this. I don't know if I'm culturally appropriating the term sharing circle, but do you know what I'm talking about? You you facilitated this fellowship uh, that and I know that I mean, I know that to be part of indigenous tradition. I've been, I've been honored to be I don't want to take things out of context, but I've been so honored to be part of some ceremony that, that, that the entire purpose was to bring people together in understanding. And I think that, I mean, I'm even seeing right now in our live chat, I mean, some people are, you know, some people are saying, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing, but some people are saying, you know, regardless of what brought those young people onto the property that night, no one should have been killed. There was, you know, people are saying, right. well, one, one viewer right now, I see Erica is participating in our chat. She's saying, Mr. Stanley should have done time for what he did, full stop. That does not erase concerns people have about rural crime or trespassing, these types of things. I, these are supercharged conversations because i know some people want to say rural crime is very real 
and people will say, I fear for my family and I've had circumstances or we've lost property or these types of things. And then someone will say, why don't you care about a young man being shot and killed? And the person will say, well, that's not what I'm saying. Right. And and what this needs to be is 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 a conversation. And when you talk about the role that governments play, who's going to moderate that? Right. Who's going to facilitate it? That that in a sense, I mean, government's roles are very broad and complicated in some circumstances and in some they're very simple and i think that you're bang on in talking about that and i wonder do you think it's actually possible i like to believe it's possible i'd like to believe it's possible too but that's you know we have to start by confronting racism like and really talking about the truth and and that comes with education uh, a lot of education you know, children are not racist. They're not taught racism. They're, they're taught racism, but they are not racist inherently, and and it's taught. So we should start with them, but also carry on the conversations into into adults and into um, the rural communities. And like, really, it just the people just need to meet and talk because here in Saskatchewan, like there is such a divide between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous. Uh, and and that that needs to be uh, bridged. Eleanor, we're uh, we're unfortunately starting to lose a bit of our connection here, our signal. But I, I can assure you that your message has been heard and and well received. Uh, what I mean is is meaningfully received by this audience. I want to thank you so much for your candor today, and thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Eleanor Sunchild is uh, a lawyer. Uh, out of Thunderchild First Nation, uh, sunchildlaw.com is where you can learn more about what she does. She's been representing uh, Debbie Baptiste, that's Colton Bushy's mom, and their family. Um, as a matter of fact, on her website, I saw this, Sarah, that you made the note. Um, she says in her career, she's she's most proud of the work that she's done representing Debbie Baptiste at the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, I want to thank our audience members as well. I mean, I know that you know this is these this is one of those conversations where. This is complex, uh, as many of these things are, and yet at the same time, it's very simple. And um, and I appreciate sometimes, you know, sometimes if you see a live forum, an internet forum talking about stuff like this, it can make you a little bit nervous. Um, and and I appreciate our audience. Obviously, it goes without saying, not everybody's going to agree on absolutely everything. I think that everyone can agree that it's absolutely tragic that a young man lost his life that night. I think many people, I know, I think most people will agree that the handling of the investigation of the circumstance was despicable, quite frankly. Um, people will disagree, I'm sure, on the outcome. Um, and some people will feel very strongly in different directions there. And I think that, I, you know, the, the one thing I think that, that Eleanor makes, I mean, ma- many wonderful points, but the, the idea of, of people gathering together to talk in community and community leaders meeting. And, and it's so easy for walls to go up metaphorically, you know, for these barriers to go up and, and for people's, you know, misunderstandings about one another or preconceived notions or long held beliefs, which can include. Uh, those stemming out of racism and systemic racism. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe this is the Pollyanna view on this, but I, I think it's doable. I think it's possible to bring people together in community and to have these conversations. But that was, I mean, you remember even outside as that trial was going on, Gerald Stanley's trial. I mean, that was, you know, outside the courtroom and, and the national news coverage there. I mean, that was, that was a, a story 
I always feel tacky. I always have mixed feelings calling things when someone was killed and another person's on trial calling it a story. It's more than a story, right? Debbie Baptiste never going to see her son again. It's more than a story. But it's a it's a it's a story. It's a reality. It's a court case and ultimately an outcome of verdict that certainly had Canadians, I hope, wrestling with bigger issues. You know, asking her, do you think that this could or will happen again? She goes, well, it already is. Always curious for your thoughts on this. I know if I know you real talkers, I know that some of you have said what you have to say on the live chat. Some of you are going to hit us up later today via our hashtag real talk RJ on Twitter. When you download this podcast and when you hear it, and some of you are going to wrestle with this and, and in the days and weeks to come, I know that we're going to get emails to talk at ryanjesperson.com and, and we welcome those emails and we thank you in advance for, for sharing your thoughts with us. Before we move on to our uh, next interview, I want to, of course, tell you, I mean, you business owners know that it's no secret that running a small business is an easy. So if you can find little hacks along the way, you take notice, right? Life as a business owner is hectic, to say the least. Well, you can let Alberta Blue Cross help you find peace of mind with a group benefit plan. They offer flexible health, dental, life, and disability coverage for your employees. You can check it all out at ab.bluecross.ca. Your employees can enroll and manage their own coverage at any time on any device. And of course, it makes life easier for them and for you. Alberta Blue Cross. You can explore your options today at ab.bluecross.ca. We're proud to feed our dogs, Moses and Monroe, Grand Dog Essentials, quality raw food. They make weekly delivery to Metro Calgary and Edmonton areas with stops right around the Red Deer area as well. This is quality raw food. We have seen return on our investment in spades, most especially with Moses. He's had some digestive concerns over the years, and they've got the beef, the chicken, the turkey and then of course all those great supplements as well if you go online right now to granddog.ca you can check it out you can learn more about how they and their team of nutritionists could find a solution that could benefit your beloved four-legged family member the promo code real talk will get you 10 percent off your first time order at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. And finally, our friends at Friesen Brothers want to remind you that there are 16 locations across the province of Alberta. The champagne of all chilies has arrived at Friesen Brothers, fresh from Hatch, New Mexico. These Have you ever been to New Mexico? Never no, been to, never. It seems like it's like a state that nobody ever goes. Like, if someone were to travel to New Mexico, you'd be like, that's cool. I couldn't tell you a single thing about New Mexico. Except for that they have these mild, flavorful hatch peppers that come from there. You don't say. Oh, yeah. Guess what? They're a great substitute for any recipe that calls for bell peppers. Really? Yeah. So you That's can throw, enough reason for me to go. Right? You yep. can throw them on your burger. You can char them on the barbecue. Maybe add them to your salad. Friesen Brothers also has their own ready-made options if you don't feel like cooking. They've got their hatch chili hummus. They've got hatch chili chili. Hatch Chili Chili and Garlic Sourdough. Or you can take and bake the Hatch Chili Father Dough to Go Pizza. Friesen Brothers excited to share this new experience with you. Come on by and see these hatched chilies for yourself. Friesen Brothers, Alberta grown, Alberta owned. So let's talk about syphilis. <laughs> let's do it. Let's talk about syphilis. This is a conversation that I know that um, Albertans have been having kind of... A little bit prompted by this release from Alberta's chief medical officer of health just a few days ago is Dr. Dina Hinshaw. 
uh, talking about the province moving on from COVID restrictions. It was titled Learning to Live with COVID-19. And in her address, she wrote, this has come, talking about the majority of public health resources directed to the COVID-19 response, this has come at the cost of not fully working on other threats like syphilis and opioid deaths. So it prompted the intrepid editorial producer of this show, Sarah Hoyles, to reach out to an infectious disease specialist, a clinical professor with the Division of Infectious Disease at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Dr. Amita Singh. Uh, Her clinical research areas of interest include uh, STIs, HIV biomedical prevention, and rapid diagnostic tests for syphilis and HIV. That's what we're going to get into today. Doctor, thank you so much for making time for us, and welcome to Real Talk. My pleasure. First of all, those are like the coolest eyeglasses I've ever seen in my entire life. I'm sorry. I know that <laughs> derails the seriousness of this conversation, but those are some sick frames. Very well cool. done. Thank very, you. very well you like done. Them. Well, you're making your Real Talk debut here. We've not yet had a chance to, to connect. Can you can you get us up to speed on, I mean, through your uh, obviously educated uh, lens, how significant of an issue syphilis is right now in the province? Mm-hmm. Yes, no. Well, you know, I, I, I was intrigued to see that Dr. Hinshaw mentioned syphilis as one of the priorities that's been let slide, I guess, during the COVID pandemic, because unfortunately, even though testing uh, declined during the pandemic, you know, for a variety of reasons, people were not going in to see their healthcare providers to get tested, um, you know, in part because they were afraid of going in to um, doctor's offices and so on. Um, we saw syphilis cases at, at an all-time high in 2020. In fact, there were over 2,500 cases in the province, with um, uh, which was 13 times um, the rates seen in uh, 2014, and still the highest rates that we've had since the 1940s in the province. And what is particularly alarming about uh, the continued rise in syphilis cases is that much of it is concentrated in Edmonton and the North Zone. And about half of those cases are in females. um, And a a significant proportion of those are also been pregnant females. And so it's meant that we've seen, um, you know, about uh, 135 uh, babies born with congenital syphilis. Uh, since 2014, and um, about 30 of those infants have died. So, you know, the expected number in Canada today should be zero. Um, We should not be seeing any cases at all. So that's pretty shocking and horrifying to see that happen. How how does this happen? I mean, you say we've got we're experiencing the highest rates since the 1940s. Is it is it awareness is down or people less careful with regards to practicing? Yeah. Do people even say safe sex anymore? Is that a phrase from like 20 years ago? Well, we might say the word safe sex, but I don't think there's a whole lot of safe sex being practiced, to be honest, for a variety of reasons. Um, You know, there's been the whole social media thing, um, increased use of of mobile dating apps has just made it so easy for people to hook up. Um, There's a lot of uh, substance use going on at the time of these interactions, uh, which, of course, impairs your ability to... um, be careful with uh, um, during your encounters. Um, we also um, 
uh, you know, a good part of what is happening with our syphilis outbreak is related, I believe, to substance use, particularly methamphetamine use in um, the prairie provinces. Um, and we, we know for sure from other indirect sources of information that methamphetamine use is among the highest in Canada in Edmonton. Um, you know, for example, the uh, testing of wastewater has shown much higher concentrations of meth in Edmonton than in other cities in Canada. And um, some of the, uh, although this is running, of course, parallel to the opioid um, epidemic, um, methamphetamine uh, is a stimulant drug which stimulates, um, uh, you know, sexual drive and therefore, again, uh, impairs um, sexual behavior and, you know, uh, makes it more likely that people will engage in risky sexual behavior. And, um, uh, you know, so uh, many of the women, the pregnant women who've been affected by syphilis, are also affected by um, other things. So, for example, um, are more likely to be affected by poverty, homelessness, um, experience addictions and mental health is issues. And a significant proportion of those women as well are also uh, Indigenous. And so, you know, again, we go back to the whole, I, I was very interested to hear your previous speaker um, talking about the impact, you know, of systemic racism and, uh, you know, the impact of the residential schools have had um, systemically um, on what is happening with syphilis. It's uh, as you're saying this, it's kind of hitting me uh, in, 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 in maybe a couple of different waves, but it's remarkable uh, to state the obvious uh, over the past couple of months, how this common thread has found its way through so many of our conversations. And as, yes. I'm, look as I'm looking at the show lineup today, I, I never would have thought that there would be a common thread that would extend from talking to the lawyer from Colton Bushy's family to talking to you, an STI researcher, a syphilis researcher. But there it is again. Is this something that do you think in, in the areas of public health and research has this been commonly known for quite some time? Or is, is there are there these awakenings as you see among researchers and public health professionals as we speak as well? You know, I think it, it has been known. We've certainly been aware that this has been an issue, but um, I, I feel having worked in this area for at least for over two decades now that what we have been doing with syphilis is really putting out fires. So what we're addressing, you know, the tip of the iceberg here. So sure, we we have and we have to do that piece of it. We have to go find cases, treat them, find their partners, treat their partners. But at the end of the day, um, I question how much impact we're going to have in terms of actually seeing a true decline in cases until we pay more attention to the so-called social determinants of health, um, try to do more to address, um, you know, poverty, homelessness, addictions, um, because until we're able to do that um, in a more meaningful way, I really don't believe that we're going to see significant changes. Um, now, of course, uh, if we look historically at what's happened with syphilis over time, syphilis epidemics do tend to cycle. So they'll tend to go in 10-year cycles, and then for reasons that we don't entirely understand, the rates will decline. But uh, they do tend to come back 
um, again, if these issues aren't addressed. So, and, and you know, people ask me, well, they say, well, how, what, what are you planning to do about the social determinants of health? It's nice to talk about that. Um, and of course, in our day-to-day work, it's very difficult to address that in a meaningful way. But some of the things that we could try to do is to make sure that our services are working more closely together. You know, um, for example, in in an in our HIV program that I work with, we actually have a whole team, multidisciplinary team. So in addition to physicians and nurses, we have social workers that work with our program, uh, pharmacists that work with our program. And I think it would be really helpful um, to have, um, not in addition to social workers, pharmacists, to have perhaps addictions personnel or to have the ability to offer all of those services when you uh, interact with an individual, you know, so to be offering them a more comprehensive level of services than just what we're doing right now, um, which is putting out fires. And, and, and honestly, we don't have a choice but to do that um, because the services are stretched. Um, and that is the priority from, from our perspective. But, you know, I, I think that we need to be thinking beyond that if we want to make a meaningful impact. You're a, you're a, a doctor and a researcher and you get it. I'm just a, a pleb. I'm a I'm as as they call us, you know, unflatteringly in TV to help everyone keep their perspective. We're the teeth and hair. That's what we are. But it's our job to keep it, our, our fingers on the pulse. And I can tell you that for the average civilian, um, I don't think people know what to think because we read from, you know, I mean, the implication from Alberta's chief medical officer of health. And I want to ask you about this directly in just a minute. But, you know, the yeah. implication is that we've not been able to address uh, in adequate fashion, the opioid epidemic, which is absolutely undeniably true, and the syphilis outbreak and other public health issues because of COVID. And the implication is that there's almost a choice to be made there. Where do we want to direct our resources? And the common sense person might say, well, of course, there's a choice to be made because we only have so many resources. And then we're going to hear, like I heard over the weekend from somebody that, that works in scheduling for AHS, that nurses are absolutely stretched and the ERs and ICUs are stressed. And we're talking about how you're saying we're putting out fires because our resources are stretched. And then the politicians are telling us, and they're not entirely wrong. They're telling us that almost 50% of the provincial budget is spent on health care and we spend more than anywhere else. And, you know, yada, yada, yada. We're spending, you know, more now than we did last year. And this government's spending more than the premier did before. And, <laughs> Right. You get where yeah, I'm going yeah. with this. And people yeah, are going, for sure. well, like, what the hell is, first of all, I'm not saying anyone's lying, but like, what the hell is the truth? What's the actual reality? We're spending half of what we bring in. We're spending like more than $20 billion a year on health in Alberta. And yet everybody's saying all we're doing is putting out fires and we barely have enough resources to keep going. How is the average yeah, person no. supposed to wrap their mind around this? Yep. Yeah, no, that's a fair comment and question. Um, you know, I think, uh, um, health services and public health services in particular do struggle with where to put um, the priorities, you know, with the focus in terms of what you have in terms of your budget and personnel, um, which is why I think understandably for the last 18 plus months, the priority has been um, addressing the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I think that's fair. Um, but unfortunately, um, you know, I, I, as I see it, some of this isn't related to health per se. Um, so housing, for example, 
um, and making sure that people have some basics. Um, basics is, of course, housing, but some of our, our um, uh, persons who are affected by syphilis and infected by syphilis also don't have even things like ID. Um, and so if they don't have ID, they can't actually get even Alberta health care. They can't, you know, sort of um, easily access other services to such as income support. Um, um, and uh, so some of those things are, are what I'm talking about, trying to integrate some of those things into health services. Do you believe I mean, I alluded to it earlier that there's a choice to be made, Um were you under the impression or did you see undeniable evidence that the province's response to the syphilis outbreak was hampered by resources being directed to COVID-19? I mean, is, is that kind of can we say that's on the agreed yeah, statement no, of that, facts here? Yeah, no, that's 100% true. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, some of our nurses, for example, that were working, um, trying to see patients with syphilis or, or to do contact tracing and to offer testing and treatment were pulled away. Um, to do COVID um, tasks. And even now um, we are short staffed in SDI services, um, you know, so there are open positions. Um, prior to the pandemic, we had a very well established um, outreach team that um, includes nurses and outreach workers that uh, went out into the inner city um, to various uh, agencies and inner city organizations to offer testing and treatment. And all of that has been put on hold for the last um, 15 to 18 months. And I, um, I can tell you that from my previous experience, those services have been invaluable in reaching individuals who won't come in and access traditional health services. You know, so if, if people aren't going to come to you, you have to go to them. And so I'd really uh, like to see us get that going again. Uh, doctor, I, uh, I, I'm not trying to necessarily, I, I guess I'm perceiving somewhat of a parallel here when we talk about, and again, this gets back to the chief medical officer of health, uh, her essay, really her letter, her open letter, let's call it. Uh, she yes. talks about opioid deaths and syphilis. And, yes. and, and I really hope that this and I'm glad she shone a light on opioid deaths. I, I wonder if this was maybe one of the subtle moves that she thought was possible to maybe I like to think point out that I don't think that this government's done a very good job on that file. Uh, the numbers are heartbreaking. If we take a look at the, the deaths experienced across Canada right now due to overdose, uh, it's it's really uh, I mean, the entire nation. Uh, needs to be paying attention to this. One of the misconceptions about I think about the opioid epidemic that people write it off and, and at risk of sounding insensitive here, um, you know, people can use some pretty hurtful language to describe people who use drugs. And I think that the understanding for a lot of people is that the opioid epidemic is really not to be taken that seriously, because quite frankly, these deaths are people that you know have made the choice uh, to be experiencing homelessness and to be using drugs, and they know the risk and nobody forced them to do these drugs. And then all of a sudden, you see these attitudes change. And all it takes is the tragedy of uh, someone's uncle uh, who had a bad knee surgery and got addicted to painkillers and lives in the suburbs and was affluent and well-to-do and he overdoses or somebody, right? You get the story I'm getting at. It, yes, people, no, people uh, only, you're absolutely right. They only wake up 
when that happens. Uh, the same thing with syphilis. When you talk to us about people experiencing homelessness and you talk about where there are disproportionate rates, etc., uh, do you have a concern that even people that hear this interview are going to go, ah, it's it's not a, you know, I'm not worried about it. You know, it's not it's not something yeah. relevant to me. Well, the reality, unfortunately, is that there's so much syphilis out there that anyone um, engaging in sexual contact outside of a mutually monogamous relationship is at risk for syphilis right now. So I heard a really tragic story last week of a young woman who um, uh, started noticing some blurring of vision and presented to see multiple healthcare providers on multiple occasions before she was diagnosed with syphilis and treated and has now been left legally blind. So, um, you know, we've definitely seen people who don't fit, you know, what, what we might call, you know, calls, call the sort of characteristic person you might expect to be affected by syphilis. Um, we've definitely seen, because of course, um, you know, as I mentioned, if you if you if you we've seen women become infected, um, if they have a new partner, for example, and they might have just had the one partner, um, uh, you know, that they have changed um, to and become infected then. So there is so much of it out there that honestly, anyone um, engaging, as I say, in sex outside of a mutually monogamous relationship is potentially at risk. What are the symptoms people should be aware of? Yeah. So, you know, the only way to know for sure if you've been infected or not is to get a blood test done for syphilis. And oftentimes, if you are tested for syphilis, um, you'll also be tested for HIV and other sexually transmitted infections, so such as gonorrhea and chlamydia. And typically, that's with a urine test. But if you do develop symptoms, it can be sores, um, which can be on the genital areas or inside the mouth. Um, and if that goes unnoticed, a few months later, people can develop a generalized rash, which can look like a number of other things, um, and sometimes fever. And um, uh, But we've seen an incredible syphilis. Uh, Sir William Osler calls syphilis the great imitator because it can present in a whole variety of ways. So we've, for example, seen young people presenting with stroke-like symptoms, um, with changes in their vision. Um, and we have had a few people lose their vision completely. Um, we've had people presenting with arthritis, so swollen, painful joints across the body. So a whole variety of present of presentations. And so, um, you know, healthcare providers need to be thinking about the possibility and doing the blood test in order to pick up that that's really the cause of their symptoms rather than something else. The uh, I mean, you talk about permanent vision loss, obviously uh, a horrible circumstance. The, the, the implications yes. for for pregnant women are, so I didn't actually realize until you reiterated at the, at, the, at the beginning that this could lead to stillbirths. I had no idea. Yes, no, that, that, that's the, the, the most horrifying thing in my mind of the impact of what's happening with syphilis right now is what is happening with the babies and the loss of the unnecessary loss of birth of children. Um, because, of course, in Canada today and for decades, syphilis has been a test that is um, offered to all pregnant women. In fact, if you access prenatal care, um, it is done routinely. And so no one should be getting congenital syphilis today. 
Um, and so you, you may well ask the question, well, why is this happening then? And, and unfortunately, the situation is that most of the women who are delivering infants with congenital syphilis have not been tested um, during the pregnancy. And so they're presenting very late on in the pregnancy, sometimes at the time of delivery. And at that time, um, it's too late to prevent the impact of syphilis. So again, you know, this, this takes me back to why if people are not going to come in and access your services, how can you go out and reach them? And so one of the things, you know, that uh, we're trying right now is a rapid diagnostic test. Um, so what that involves is taking uh, some blood from a finger prick specimen um, to do uh, testing for syphilis and HIV. And um it gives you a test result in under five minutes, and that test result can be used to offer treatment right there and then. And so what that does is prevents uh, complications from occurring if people don't come back um, in and get uh, their test results. So sometimes, you know, we test people and then we lose them to follow up. Um, because, uh, you know, their social situation is so uh, uh, unstable that they're not able to come back in for follow-up. So um, even that study um, has been uh, significantly delayed um, because of the COVID pandemic, mm. but I'm really hoping that we can pick that up again uh, as things open up. Yeah, so this is, uh, uh, this is, is this, am I understanding correctly? It's a clinical trial, right? Is this, is this somewhat of a groundbreaking approach to this? Um, you know, it shouldn't be groundbreaking. Hmm. These rapid diagnostic tests have been available in uh, the rest of the world for over a decade now. And we have tried to use um, another rapid diagnostic test in, in, a, in Edmonton about 10 years ago. But unfortunately, that test was a little bit cumbersome to use and our field staff didn't like it. It took about 40 to 45 minutes, which is just too long practically speaking, in the field to do that. Um, people don't want to wait around that long. And so that kind of died off. And so when the outbreak started again, um, I started taking a look to, to see what was available on the global market today. So many countries, you know, in, in the developing world are using these tests routinely. Um, and so, um, as it happens, both of both of the test kits that we're trying here in Edmonton are made by Canadian companies one in Vancouver, one in Halifax. And um, the beauty of these two test kits is that they provide test results in on, under five minutes. They're both fairly straightforward to use. So, and the reason that we've set it up as a clinical trial is because they're not approved for use in Canada currently. And we're hoping to actually generate these scientific data, hopefully showing that they do perform well in the field so that that can contribute to both companies applying for Health Canada approval if they turn out to be, you know, as useful as we think they will be. Hmm. I had uh, uh, a couple of friends actually that worked on a project a while ago. I'm sure you must be familiar with plenty of SIF. Are, is that yes. is that on your radar? Yes. yes. So unfortunately, yeah, the, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the website is not still live. So I just have this from the ZGM yeah. website, formerly yeah. known as Calder Bateman, and uh, and yeah. our friends at Burn Kit in Vancouver, actually who do the branding for Real Talk, uh, were yeah. the ones who designed this Plenty of SIF oh, campaign. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Based, of course, on the Plenty of Fish, uh, you know, the dating site. I'm not sure anybody uses that anymore, but. But are, are public campaigns like that, like plenty of SIF, it was certainly cheeky and, and I think it grabbed people's attention. It won a whole ton of awards, uh, advertising yes. awards. Are, are, is stuff like that effective? 
Um, I think it is effective uh, for people, of course, who are accessing social media on a regular basis, right? Um, I think it. Um, there's no question that if that is your target audience, and we know that some of the um, syphilis outbreak has been occurring in individuals who are using social media apps, um, uh, heterosexual persons as well as gay and bisexual men of sex with men. And so I think that using um, those forms of uh, interventions is very useful when trying to reach those target groups. Um, now, it's a little bit different for, um, you know, some of our syphilis cases or a good chunk of our syphilis cases, actually, that are mostly in their inner city, um, then that might be less useful in trying to reach that group. Doctor- I thought it was a fantastic uh, um you know, media campaign. Yeah. And, but, but you, yes, period, new paragraph. Uh, you also make a really great point though about access and uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly designed to reach the, the savvy web user that's, that's being yes. reached by ambitious and creative ad campaigns. But you're right for people experiencing homelessness, people without that technology, people with, for whatever reason that, that already have uh, barriers that exist between themselves and equitable healthcare or accessible health care, certainly that that might require different solutions, which you've detailed here. This is a fascinating area of study. Thank you. You've hung out with us for like you've given us almost 40 minutes of your day. I'm really grateful for that. Uh, Thank you. Just looked at the clock like, oh, my God, I just looked Uh, at the clock. (laughs) You're you're 20 minutes late. It went so fast. (laughs) It did go so fast before we go. Hey, let me ask you something on a side note. And I I, I promise I'll let you go. And this is our chance, my time to ask you if we've missed anything important. But I do want to ask. And and again, this comes back to COVID-19. But you've you've provided some very interesting insight into not just syphilis, but also uh, methamphetamine use uh, in populations relating to this wastewater testing and this fecal testing and everything else. Um, And and I've my understanding is that in the absence of, for example, with these COVID-19 tests and data being released to the public, that researchers, uh, public health professionals will still have some sense of the prevalence of COVID-19 and and other uh, health issues in a population based on that fecal testing or the wastewater testing. How reliable is it? I mean, obviously you can't tell. I mean, if you're downstream from Edmonton testing water, you don't know if it's Mill Woods or downtown. You don't know if it's men or women. You don't know if it's visible minorities. You don't know if it's the elderly, right? I mean, you you can only. Yeah, no. And and you make an excellent point. All that's giving you is really a snapshot Mm -hmm. for a huge, you know, geographical area. For example, it would be the city of Edmonton, um, what's happening with COVID-19, but it certainly isn't providing as much information as it would be if you were testing individual persons. Um, but I think it will be um, a good marker going forward, but it would be have to be one of a number of different um, pieces of information that are used to try to figure out what's happening with the COVID uh, pandemic. Hmm. Um this is uh craig just says dang syphilis is scary uh thank you for if (laughs) if nothing else use condoms (laughs) use condoms yeah you is that the number one thing they do work yeah yeah they do work yeah all right well they're just not very popular (laughs) yeah they're they're not popular are they i i uh, well i don't know i'm so i'm so out of it i was like you know if i'm gonna even talk about like plenty of fish and tinder and like i have no idea this is i I was off the market by the time that stuff came around i don't even know i hear you my my friends tell me that that tinder's not a thing anymore there's there's bumble and some other one that's apparently so popular uh but this hinge that's exactly right hinge is the one that everybody talks about now um but doc it's interesting you you uh as dr singles 
I thought he said he was letting me go. Um, you talk, you, you talked about the, the pandemic and how syphilis rates are up, and and I'm sitting there going, but I thought that people weren't hooking up as much because of obvious reasons. That yeah, I thought, so I thought a, lot, I. a lot of people's kind of scoring game kind of slowed <laughs> down a little bit, but it also probably yeah. reiterates some of the more marginalized populations, more the more at risk populations you talked about, where where they're still. I mean, there weren't a lot of options for people to isolate, and there probably wasn't as much. Do I call it behavioral change? Yes. Yeah. No, no. Um, I think, you know, it's been a mix. Um, certainly some individuals um, change their behavior, but our observation has been that many did not. So, yeah. um, you know. Dr. Amita Singh, an infectious disease specialist, a clinical professor at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed the conversation, uh, which I didn't, you know, I wouldn't say I expected to say about syphilis, but I did quite enjoy the conversation. <laughs> Never a dull day. Never a dull moment here on Real Talk. That's Dr. Amita Singh. What a debut. I love it. All right. Yeah, you got it. Take care. Yeah, Bye-bye. You, for sure. And, and certainly the most, it's not the point, but the most stylish eyeglasses I think that we've seen in a while. I'll have to follow up with her. Nobody gets mentioned for free on Real Talk. We'll have to follow up with her privately, find out where she gets her specs. It's time for me to upgrade. Uh, Dr. Amita Singh, love it. Um, that wasn't as awkward as I thought. It's good to have conversations like this. But, but I think that's precisely the point. The fact that like we don't talk about it. We're like, yikes, right? syphilis. Yeah. And it's, no, these are things we need to talk about. This is health. This is whole health. B- blindness, stillborns. Like, I've been watching Nick, which is a HBO show. Okay. And it's about the 1920s in New York City and about uh, the outbreak of all different kinds of things at a hospital. Ah. And a woman comes in. She's lost part of her nose because of syphilis. Um, and I was just like, excuse me, what? Syphilis? I didn't realize like that. leprosy. Right. Um, so it says with penicillin, it can be cured. Um, so it's not yeah, incurable, but it's uh, it just kind of blew my hair back the idea of like i didn't realize blindness um there's all kinds of results from that i mean i just basically i'm digging in when i watch the nick i'm like i'm just digging into the pandemic life and just you know saying i'm in it for the long haul i'm staying home yeah well i mean everybody's predicting or forecasting the the roaring 20s again yeah right now 100 years later the roaring 20s again as society emerges out of this covid fog this covid haze um It'd be it'd be interesting to wouldn't it be interesting to see like I don't know if those companies like Tinder and and Hinge and Bumble would ever release the numbers. But if you could if you could get that data on, uh, you know, actual slowdowns versus perceived slowdowns of the so-called anonymous hookups. Right. Like did did. You know, I mean, you know, I talked to my buddy. I won't even say his name uh, the other day, but, but he was like telling me how excited he was to be dating again. And uh, this is kind of crude, but it's fact. A lot of people can relate. He's like, dude, I haven't been late in a year and a half. I was like, well, Maddie, you know, I mean, (laughs) not his real name. No, it is his real name. (laughs) His name is Matt. And his name is Matt. And he's not had sex in a year and a half. (laughs) But he had a date this weekend. So maybe he has now. But same sort of a thing. He, oh, I know a lot of guys named Matt. I probably know I've got a lot of guys named Matt that haven't had sex in a year and a half, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Most of them are married. This one's not. Oh, um, no, God. but no. Oh, the old ball and chain. Right, eh? hey, the old right, ball and gotta go. Right, gotta go right. tell the old lady there what's up, eh? The old ball and chain, eh? Uh, but, but seriously, like how many people, how many single people, the, the mixers and the minglers, actually, through the course of like, 
please isolate, stay home, save lives, you know, save lives. Don't swap spit. I sound like a 90 year old right now. But all of these, you know, the, the whole the spirit of the pandemic, it wasn't a lockdown. It wasn't even close never to a lock, was. It never was a lockdown, but it was a slowdown. It was a bit of a shutdown in some circumstances. No bars were open. No nightclubs were open. But but were those still were, were there still those singles making eyes with one another in the in the bakery at Friesen Brothers or in the, you know, getting their oil changed or, you know, so kind of like hey, the fireworks happen. And, and were there still hookups that people just couldn't tell anybody about? And if there were hookups, if you did have that ooh, out of nowhere and it just happened and there were fire and we, as they say in Short Circuit 2, we sing it, we dance it. If you had that magic night together, Short two. could you tell any? Johnny Five still love alive. I love One that. of the greatest movies of all time. Sorry. Although I'll never watch it. I don't, I'm not going to watch it again to ruin it. Yeah, it would be ruined. My buddies never talking just the other day about Ernest. Ernest goes to jail. Ernest goes to camp. Yes. They, they we're saying, well, Jim, Jim Varney died so young. What a shame. The conver- I'll, I'll bring this back. Okay. The conversation started with John Candy. I couldn't because he died. I just realized this this year. We were talking about Canadian legends in film and some of the legends of, you know, one of the, all, the all time greats. And everybody could could agree that John Candy is one of the all-time greats. Looked him up 44 years of age. Get out of town. Yeah, he died at 44. Yowzers. Wild, hey? So we're, we're talking about that. And, and then, oh boy, now I got to walk this back and figure out where I was going. But, but we, were, we were talking about all that. And uh, yeah, I lost my train of shot. Hooking up. Hooking up. In the times of COVID. In the times of COVID. And uh, yes, yeah, so we're talking about these hookup Maddie not being able and, to get poor, laid for poor Maddie, you Maddie, who's never going to tell me anything ever again, especially when I now tell you his last name is. <laughs> and you can follow him on Instagram at... His handle is... Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's just, uh, I'd be curious to know what, if people actually, because then if you did hook up and if magic did happen, right, we're walking it back. We agreed you can't watch the earnest movies again because they'd be ruined. We think that they were great, but they probably weren't that good. And then we, Police Academy, did you ever watch Police Academy? Are you kidding me? The guy that could make all the, was it Steve Gutenberg was one of the stars? That was his name. Or am I thinking of the the guy that invented the printing press? (laughs) I think it was Steve Gutenberg, right? In the, in the Police Academy films. But could you, if you did find that magic through times of COVID and you did hook up with somebody socially, that would have been very unpopular, right? Uh, no, it would. Of course it would. I, Do I you mean, think? Well, because on the apps, they, you're a lot, like you, you basically say, like, what is your comfort level around, you know, well, right now it's like you actually, it, it allows you to say you're vaccinated or not, or partially vaccinated. And also it, it let you know, um, you know, if you wanted to meet up and have safe distance, if you want to be masked, unmasked, indoors, outdoors. Are you serious? Really? Yes. So on the dating apps, and I, I think this is smart. I think it's great. I would like to Very know if proactive. I was, I would love to know if I was about to go for coffee with a COVID denier. I would like to know that, you know, um, there wouldn't be a second date. Well, there wouldn't be a first date. Are you kidding me? Is that what? Uh, but, but no, but this on, is real talk. You don't don't so you want to go and meet them and talk to them and no, find out why they're? I can get enough of that on the internet. Thank you very much. <laughs> I can I, I can put something out on on Twitter like uh, IPCC report out. You know, glo- globe heating up at unprecedented rate. People like James Snyder of the World Wildlife Fund sounding the alarm. And then that just invites enough. I'll hear from enough Fair COVID enough. deniers and climate change deniers. Although I think at this point, I have most of them muted or blocked. 
somebody came at me the other day and was like, oh, are you, are you going to block me? I was like, dude, I block. I hand out blocks like Dikembe Mutombo. Like, I'm not. That's not an insult. Oh, Jesperson blocked me. You know, you didn't win. I'm not going to deal with I, 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 I used to be like, oh, give them another chance. They're probably having a bad. Day. I'm now just like block, block. Like I'm Dikembe in there. It doesn't matter to me. But I'd be curious to know now if they're if they're drawing that line on the dating apps and on the and, and where this is going to become like Quebec and the rest of Canada, <laughs> two distinct a distinct society within another. Well, I think the unvaccinated. I'm, now people are going to say Jesperson compares Quebec to the unvaccinated. Not my point. Not my intention. But I do believe that there will. Right, it's becoming more and more relevant. There's this big dust up in our home city right now about these, you know, a couple of uh, restaurants. A couple yeah. of, you know, there's a juicery in town that's comparing, you know, uh, you know, vaccine requirements for businesses to basically experiments during the Holocaust, yeah. and uh, and they're going to pay the price. They are paying the price they're for that right, right now. now. I'm not naming them. I'm not going to pile on them. I don't even want. I, I have better things to do than enter that fight. But I think that people can probably prepare themselves for a reality. Like we see in Manitoba right now with the QR code on the phone. You want to come in my restaurant? Scan the QR code. Prove to me that you're double vaxxed. Come on in. Yep. And if you're not, beat it. No shirt, no shoes, no vax, no service. It's just like a bar with, you know, like 18 plus. Show me your license, your sure. driver's license. Are you 18? No. Sure. Beat it. Or like golf courses. You know, are you rich? Are you white? Are you male? If not, beat it. That's a joke. And I love golf. I, well, I I have to go back to one thing around the dating apps. There are, you know, yes, the vaccine and vaccination is, is important, but you can also tell a lot if someone is taking a photo with their phone in the mirror back oh. at themselves. That's a big, that's a big like red flag. Why is that? They want to show their whole body. They want to show their fashion. Well, you shouldn't. Does that mean that you like you don't have any friends to take photos of you or a tripod or a tri like I just really guys. Your, yes. cri your criticism on the dating app is that the person doesn't own a tripod. <laughs> That's Real a non-starter for me. Uh, OK. And <laughs> the shirt off. First Keep of all, you have a girl. You have a fiance. First. Yeah, of all. I know. <laughs> and shirts off. I mean, to guys, don't take your shirts off. Don't don't do it. Well, don't worry. I never would. <laughs> Like my buddy Jimbo told me once, I'm cut like a bag of milk. <laughs> I got a magazine. Cover you know who's not cut like a bag of milk? Yeah, that's right. I was nude on the cover of a magazine back in May, wasn't I? <laughs> Do we have one here? Where is it? Yeah, we have one here somewhere. Uh, if you haven't seen it by now, you don't give a flying fuck. Let's be honest. I should let some time simmer after dropping that bomb before I start talking about the World Triathlon Championship Finals, right? It was teeing up so nicely, taking off the shirt, These guys, packs, pecs. Yeah, that's right. These guys are not cut like a bag of milk. <laughs> These guys and gals are the fittest athletes on the planet. And coming up August 20th through 22nd, they are all touching down in Alberta's capital city, the city of Edmonton, Canada's triathlon city which is one of only three cities in the world to be hosting it for the third time. Check this out. I want to feature uh, edmonton.triathlon.org, the community event maps. This is so easy to use. You want to watch the open water swim? See, this is for me like the, I'd already be out at the swim. Forget it. I'm already dead last. I'm like getting kicked in the face. These guys, the urban cycling Fondo, which is going to be a ton of fun to watch. There's that sprint corporate triathlon that I know a lot of people are excited about. And then the try a try. Try a try. See if it's a good fit. There are so many different options for involvement as a fan, like a spectator, with distanced pre-booked seating. All of it free. If you'd rather volunteer, 
What an opportunity that is. And of course, ways to get involved as well. You want to work up a sweat? You can check it all out online at edmonton.triathlon.org. We also wanted to take the time to remind you that our friends at Dairy Queen are putting their money where their mouth is this month, the entire month of August. They wanted to make a meaningful contribution in the spirit of reconciliation. So they reached out to the Wakutuan Society. Uh, This is a society that hosts annual retreats for Indigenous women who have survived both residential schools and cancer. And they provide these uh, retreats, including sharing circles that allow for what they describe as fundamental, culturally intuitive healing tools so that these women can can be empowered to wellness and strength and return to their communities in leadership roles. It is such an inspiring story. And for the month of August, the six Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park will be donating $1 from every ice cream cone sold. Every cone counts. Every child matters at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Well, you've no doubt seen at least some chatter around the release of this IPCC report. It it was released just yesterday. As you can see, Climate Change 2021, the report, a new global climate science journal confirming that humans have irreversibly altered the planet and locked in many changes. Climate scientists around the world are urging immediate action and we'll be focusing on this in the days and weeks and months to come if you will from a number of different perspectives what about what this means for nature for the world around us for those living beings that share planet earth with us humans james snyder kind enough to join us on behalf of the world wildlife fund james it's great to have you on the show thanks for doing this welcome to real talk Hi, Ryan. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. How did, how did this report land in your lap with a big thud? I mean, did, did, from your perspective, is it a tell me something I don't already know? Or what was the impact of it yesterday for you? Yeah, so th- this sixth report from the IPCC really is a synthesis of the best available science from around the world. I think there's over 14,000 pieces of science that underlie this report that was released yesterday. Over 195 countries are involved in that IPCC 65 countries were represented in the report, but the findings there really, I think, are a stark reminder in terms of really that climate change is happening. It's happening now. The evidence for that in terms of the physical science of why and how climate change is occurring is unequivocal. It's human cause. Our GHG emissions, our greenhouse gas emissions are are causing a warming of the atmosphere and that the window for us to limit that change to 1.5 degrees, which is really a critical threshold in terms of seeing catastrophic uh, tipping points, that window is closing, but it's still scientifically achievable, but we need to act now. That was the main point that I would take away from this, from the report released yesterday. We uh, took a look at the release from from your organization, the World Wildlife Fund, which, of course, is known around the world. Uh, part of it uh, reads altering the path ahead is scientifically, as you've just reiterated, still possible, which I think is an important detail. I think that people need to have some optimism here uh, among the stark reality of the data. You say if, though, per the World Wildlife Fund, if we take urgent and strong action to reduce carbon dioxide emissions immediately with the window rapidly closing. It's critical that these plans include nature-based solutions. Take us into what that could look like. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the the key takeaway, of course, is rapid reduction in our emissions. So rapid, urgent, and broad-scale reductions in our emissions to net zero 
by 2050, mid-century. And if we do so, it is possible to escape the worst of what climate change might mean in terms of broad scale warming, in terms of both the, 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 the massive changes that could mean. And, and in Canada right now, we're witnessing that um, inc incredibly high temperatures, some would say extreme warming, uh, drought, and as well as fires that have been happening right across many parts of our country, uh, ravaging wildfires. And those risks, those hazards are, are, are increasingly on the horizon if, run, if climate change continues to run away. But if we take urgent action now, it is possible for us to reduce our emissions to get down to net zero. Um, and what we say when we refer to nature-based climate solutions is to really empower nature to help re remove and reduce those emissions from the atmosphere. Our forests, our wetlands, our grasslands can be this critical uh, sink uh, or sponge, if you will, to help remove those greenhouse, ga greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide, like methane, out of the atmosphere and can really a, be a huge driver of getting a long way to those emissions reductions. And in so doing, also tackle the other dual environmental crisis, which is biodiversity loss. And I think that's the other side of the equation here that's so important is we are also in the midst of a, an extinction event. We're seeing the loss of biodiversity globally that has unparalleled really on geological timescales. And the drivers of biodiversity loss and climate change, many of them are the same. And in turn, the solution can be the same by investing in nature, investing in protection and stewardship of important ecosystems that we can halt the loss of biodiversity and also take meaningful action to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, to get to net zero, to stabilize our climate and provide really that that safe, habitable earth that we rely upon as, as people really around the world. It's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I'm I'm grateful to have your perspective on this in the context of the IPCC report and, and climate change. I mean, we've been having conversations about biodiversity and forests when it comes to reforestation following uh, logging and forestry. This is a conversation that's been occurring in British Columbia and Alberta, of course. This is a, a bit of a different angle on it. Now, some of the conversations there have been in, in the area, as I mentioned, of essentially planting, right? Planting post logging. And some of the complaints we've seen or some of the comments we've seen from people is that these forests are not restored to reflect the nature of biodiversity was there before. In other words, you just maybe, you know, plant a big uh, swath of, of, of pine or of aspen or whatever. It's not what it was like before. Are you talking specifically when you talk about preserving? Um, are we talking about is, is the biggest challenge right now preserving natural grasses and, and forestry? Is it restoring? Is it returning land to what it once was? I mean, how do you approach this if you're the average Canadian trying to wrap your mind around what maybe political leadership might look like on this file? What should you be looking for? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it's all of the above in terms of what you've listed. And I think your concerns around uh, some of these plantation type uh, efforts that they, they don't necessarily have the biodiversity value are, are held by many. Um, I would say protection and stewardship are critically important. The amount of carbon that's stored in our ecosystems is vast. It's, it's really quite massive, astounding amount of carbon stored in our natural ecosystems, our forests, our wetlands, our grasslands, our coastal ecosystems, even our tundra ecosystems, you know, underneath the permafrost there, there is an absolutely massive amount of carbon. Part of the equation is that we need to reduce the emissions from those ecosystems. As much as 30% of our total emissions into the atmosphere 
are through the destruction and degradation of our of our ecosystems, our natural ecosystems, our that land and our soils. And so, if we're able to stop that, if we're stop able to stop that degradation, to stop that fragmentation, to stop the conversion of those important carbon sinks, those carbon storage areas, places, some places that have been accumulating carbon over thousands of years, um, that if we can stop the conversion of those important places, that will go a long way to um, at least stabilizing our emissions. And in turn, by through removals, by investing in those same ecosystems, they can continue to draw down carbon out of the atmosphere and store it over time. And so that strategy really needs to be, think, threefold, which is protect those important carbon sinks that exist as they are to exist today, our forests, our wetlands, and again, our, our peatland ecosystems, massive amount of carbon in our peatlands. And then in turn, invest in the stewardship, again, of our, of our forests, managing them actually for carbon. That's, that's something that I think is a new idea Right when we look to how we manage our forests, how do we actually optimize the forest management, our, our grassland management to store and secure more carbon? And in turn, yes, investing in broad scale restoration, including things like reforestation. All three of those components, protect, manage, restore, need to be essential to our strategies in terms of the role of biodiversity, the role of natural ecosystems and preventing future climate change. James, how long, how many years have you been involved in, in what you might describe as environmental advocacy? Uh, let's say, let's say that 14 years, 14 so years? I've been, you know, more than a decade working okay. in conservation in Canada. So you've, so you've seen over the course of 14 years, you've seen conversation evolve big time um, to, to include things that were maybe once theory that are now reality, like things like price on carbon. Um, sure. I think maybe people take, things i think people are taking severe weather events a little bit more seriously things like wildfires and and you know rising sea levels and yeah i mean all that kind of stuff um mm -hmm. the point of my question is to ask you based on your experience um what does a report like this do because if, if you were to come up with some sort of a metaphor on what this is like i mean if you're behind the wheel of a vehicle uh, maybe i'm providing some irony here but if you're behind the wheel of a vehicle this is the equivalent of every red light on the dashboard flashing at you right or this is the equivalent of if, if you're you know steering the titanic uh all all warnings should be going off about you know the fact that we're headed straight for an iceberg does it actually, does a report like this, I mean, if you read it and if you see what signed, I was reading the Boston Globe this morning. I mean, scientists are sounding the alarm, hundreds of them from around the planet. Absolutely. Does it actually resonate with members of the general public? Like, does the public actually feel the urgency, do you think, that these climate scientists do or that you might? I think increasingly, yes. I think, as you said, climate change for so long was this theor theoretical thing that was on the horizon, right? Like it's coming. Let's be careful of what's on the horizon. Climate change is here now. I think that there's, it's indisputable that we are now seeing the effects of climate change here in Canada, that, that people, the, 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 the common person right across this country is able to see that climate change is happening through increasing temperatures, through increasing drought events that we're seeing, the massive fires that we're seeing now year over year, in, in many parts of this country. And so increasingly, yes, I think that the, across this country that there is a, a growing understanding, um, a, a growing appreciation of why climate change is now this massive issue that isn't just in terms of far-flung 
parts of this of the world that's happening here at home in Canada and that action is needed. I think there's increasingly broad scale public understanding of that in terms of what is required in terms of the steps that we need to take um, right across this country and around the world. That's the other side of the equation here, which is the, the, the scale of what needs to occur in the decades ahead of us. And there really is a very short window of action. And that would be perhaps the biggest takeaway of the report that we saw yesterday is the, the sense of urgency, the sense of time for action is now, that we need to act and be reducing our emissions, not five years from now, not two years from now, but now. It needs to happen because that window is increasingly growing short. I, uh, I, I've seen, I saw that a former colleague of mine uh, in, in terrestrial radio, her name was trending on Twitter across Canada. So I had to, I couldn't help myself. I had to see why Danielle Smith was trending. Um, and she's got this opinion piece in the National Post. I want to recognize, we're talking to James Snyder. If you're just tuning in, streaming our audio live on the Mixler audio app, James is a, a conservation biologist uh, with the World Wildlife Fund, Vice President for Science, Knowledge, and Innovation. What a cool job title, by the way. Uh, but I want to acknowledge, I'm, this may be getting out of your wheel house james so if you feel like this isn't maybe necessarily an area where where you want to offer informed comment that's fine but i had to see why people were lighting their hair on fire regarding danielle's opinion piece and she's talking about carbon capture storage and technology and she gets into this and here's what i want the pointed question she says greenhouse gas emissions were about 740 megatons in 2005 she's talking about canada Mm-hmm. That means the government wants us to be at 405 megatons by 2030 to hit these goals established by you know the federal government and based on commitments, the Paris Accord and everything else. She says, as of 2019, which are the most recent stats available, we're at 730 megatons. Danielle writes, so in the first 15 years, we reduced emissions by 10 megatons. Now we are apparently going to reduce emissions by 325 megatons in the next 10 years. She then goes on to ask, do you see how this might be a problem? How would you respond to that? I mean, it it describes obviously, I mean, when you put the numbers like that, most people, I think many people anyway, would scoff at the ambition required to hit a target like that. I'm curious to know what your take would be on it. I think it's a great characterization, actually a really well put description of the, the, the size of, of what we have to accomplish. We need to nearly half our emissions, right, from over 700 um, by 2030. And then after 2030, we need to half it again in the decade following and again the decade following till we get to zero. That's what needs to happen in the next 30 years. And so the ambition there is huge. Absolutely, the scale of action that we need, that is required is massive. And I think increasingly, we need a broad scale recognition of what that action is, that we need to, to invest in it now. The longer that we wait, the steeper that curve of reduction will be. It'll be a near cliff. And so I don't think that those numbers necessarily say, oh, it's not possible. It, it, what it says to me is, well, we better get moving. We better do this now. Otherwise, it's going to be even more challenging in the years ahead. Um, so that, that, that would be my take on it, is that this is a very clear sign. The indicators there, the science is there. It's very clear what we need to do. And the public support is increasingly there because that the, the perils, the impacts of climate change are increasingly real and they're impacting us right across the country. So now we need to act. We need to reduce our emissions. We need to be investing in a broad suite of strategies of policies and programs that get us to those goals. And we need to act now. If I were to ask you to grade governments on how they're doing on the file from, you know, from A down to F, is, is it a fairest? You're in Ontario, right, James? Is that right? 
I am in, this, I'm here in Toronto. So I guess I can ask you, you know, can I say how are the provinces doing on this? And you'd probably say, well, which province? I mean, right, I would imagine. Uh, how's the sure. federal government doing on this? Maybe you could give a comment. Is c- Could you provide some, some insight into maybe provinces that are doing well or provinces that need to do way better and maybe an assessment on how the federal government's doing, you know, per the mandate that you and so many others are setting out? Sure. Well, it's, it's a, that's a tricky question, right? Because I think we're seeing... We're seeing a, a real diversity of performance across the country in terms of, of relative ambition on, on climate, uh, in terms of governments, in terms of where they want to go, and their relative willingness to, to embrace the science and really tackle this head on. I think there has been a tendency, and this is not new, for, for many uh, governments to simply want to wait to not to have to deal with it because the, the 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 magnitude of the issue is so large. And where do you start carving away at that at that mountain of emissions that we have? Um, and and I think what I would say is that for any government that sees the science and that knows that it's unequivocal that there are scientists around the world that have agreed upon this, that there's no doubt here that climate change is occurring, that climate change is human caused. And let's not get caught in debating that issue any longer but rather let's get on with the task ahead of us and let's really jump in, jump into the deep end and see what are those innovations that we can bring to the table that can catalyze our economy, right? Let's not fall into the trap of, of framing this as, as a climate change versus economy. There are governments around the world, I think arguably there's governments like already in Canada that have seen the opportunities in terms of actually stepping into this and seeing what is the new economy that we can create? How can we build jobs, build our economy, build livelihoods for our communities right across the country and that it is possible? And I think we don't wanna be a laggard here. We don't wanna be left behind in the, in the new economy. We wanna be leading it. And that's true on a global stage. James Snyder is uh, Vice President for Science, Knowledge and Innovation, uh, conservation biologist with the World Wildlife Fund. Thanks for making time for us today, James. It's been nice to connect. Great. Thanks for having me on the show, Ryan. Yeah, you bet. You bet. It's kind of like it's kind of the theme today is like, thank you for joining us for this wonderful conversation about the end of the world as we know it. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, Haas chiming in as well. Uh, Haas, by the way, gets credit uh, for uh, yesterday, which was deemed by real talkers. I saw on Twitter, the authority that is Twitter to be the author and deliverer of what they called the quote of the week. Uh, wondering if sidewalk chalk outside constituency offices for MLAs could perhaps be washed away with crocodile tears. So Haas should walk around with that banner. That badge of honor this week chiming in again and says, if you look at IPCC reports over the years, this most recent report almost seems inevitable. Thanks to our collective inaction. Uh, Greg chiming in says, you know, the scale of massive change is also going to be great for the economy, but we need to stop allowing oil and gas companies to influence government policy. Uh, I mean, yeah, that great. And I agree, but how the hell do we do that? Well, I don't know. Pay attention to who you vote for, number one. But also, hey, it's a reality that industry is going to form or play a role in forming government policy. That's been the case for as long as there has been government. What does leadership look like? I've got friends that are working for oil and gas companies that always say to me, they're like, we are energy companies. People have no understanding of how forward we are thinking of how bullish we are on sustainable energy. It'll be interesting to see. I got a text this morning. As I was powdering my nose and preparing for the show, I got a text from my buddy, Bob, Bob Delamar. We went to university together. I haven't seen him in person since university. He says, I'm moving to Alberta. He's just uh, he and his family are moving to Alberta. 
He says, I'm not cheering for the Oilers or the Flames, but we're moving to Alberta. Uh, it's because his company, Canada Clean Power and Climate Technologies, are partnering with the Frog Lake First Nation east of Edmonton, and they're building up, uh, they're, they're partnering up rather to build a net zero power plant. Cool. Yeah. And so he's moving to Alberta. This is a great story. The, the national focus is on, you know, the, the, these, this idea that, that everyone's not this idea. I'm not discounting it. Uh, it's a problem. You know, doctors and nurses among them, people that are leaving the province, people that are leaving Alberta, people are saying this is brain drain, you know, at its core. This is the real problem Alberta is going to face. Here's a guy that's bringing tech and innovation and an opportunity for partnership, indigenous economic participation and all of the things. It ticks a lot of the boxes. I said to Bob, we better get an exclusive with you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we better. So that interview will be coming up on Real Talk. I'm excited to reconnect with him. He's he's one of these guys. He was the. Was he the president or exec- of the Lester B. Pearson Society at uh, university? We went there together. He's a, he was a model UN guy. He went on to earn Ooh, his law wow. degree. And he was, he was one of these guys where even as a 21-year-old, I'd be talking to Bob and because we're both involved in Model United Nations. And the whole time I was like putting up, it's kind of like what I do on, on the show. Um, I'm The whole time I'm going, I am out of my depth on this conversation big time. Every time I talk to Bob, I'm like, this guy's way smarter than me. So I'm, Bob is an underachiever is what you're saying. But yeah, I'm excited that he's moving to Alberta. This is a great ad for Alberta. It's, it's uh, appears and we'll look forward to the conversation, but it appears to be an amazing opportunity with the Frog Lake First Nation. Anyway, this coming back to Greg's comment about how the opportunities for economic participation and quite frankly, wealth building are there. Uh, I think if people are able to, you know, process what moving forward looks like, where the economies are going, where global trends are going, where expectations are, what emissions reduction looks like. I like that James didn't back away from that. I would say here are the numbers that Danielle Smith includes in her opinion piece in the National Post. And he goes, yeah, paints a pretty clear picture about what we have to do. I find it terrifying and I feel hopeless. <laughs> Hoyles. I do. That report, I mean, it basically underlines, underscores, uh, like exclamation points, all my feelings. And I, yeah, I I don't know what to do. I feel, yeah, I, I can vote, yes, and I can do my little part in the choices that I make, but this is... This is epic. When we say you can vote, too, let's be clear that you don't just like vote against one party that you perceive to be doing a lousy job on the climate file. So you automatically vote for the other party. Demand vision Mm. and strategy and a plan from political parties, meaningful action on the climate file. And of course, we will continue to explore as part of these ongoing conversations that we have continue to explore what that actually looks like. Or I said, Straya, uh, nice to have you back in the live chat. Or I said, Straya, who made a note earlier today. Uh, they said I-, I had stepped out of watching this live for a couple of weeks. We know for a lot of people that's the real. We don't blame you for going to Penticton and doing wine tours in the Okanagan. We don't blame you for that. Well, it's good to have you all back. Mm. Um, September is going to be. We're going to see the audience start coming back in September when people get back into their regular routines. Or I said, Straya said earlier, I-, I step away for two weeks at a live chat. I come back and it's the Edmonton Police TikTok video. Woo! Welcome back right back into one But they say on this one unfortunately In Alberta a lot of people see oil and Gas as synonymous with Economy and In part because that has been The case for many decades and it is still Relevant but at the same Time people need to understand that there Are opportunities that Exist with regards to where Industry is going 
And I know that that's obviously for a lot of people got to be a big part of the conversation. Around, you know, what are your kids studying in post-secondary? What are you recommending that people look into when it comes to career changes? Mm-hmm. You know, what does transforming or reinventing yourself look like? I mean, how often do we talk about Athabasca University and these online courses and people that are making, you know, steps and making meaningful moves to, to better prepare themselves for a career transition? It doesn't have to be a scary thing. It can be scary. Trust me. I've been through a career transition in the last nine months. It's scary as hell. Scary as hell. What did I do? I identified some skills that I had. How does it apply to a new industry, an, an emerging industry, digital, new, independent media? And we're making it happen. I mean, I'm not trying to oversimplify it. I'm not trying to ignore or gloss over some very real challenges and barriers that, that exist and that people face. But you got to find it within you to a certain degree. People will say, listen to this guy oozing his privilege. To a certain degree, fair enough. But at the same time, hey, man, the world's going to keep moving. And you're going to make the choice on how you react or respond to it and the steps that you take. Just like the team at, nah, that might be a little bit of a stretch, right? <laughs> well, we couldn't have these important conversations without the team yeah. at. Well, I mean, there's a perfect there's a perfect opportunity to talk about our friends at Park Power. Yeah. Right? I mean, the team at Park Power, you know what's amazing is they internet, electricity, and natural gas is their wheelhouse. And then I see them online and all the things they're talking about. They're fascinated with energy transition and solar and the new innovation. There's so many reasons why we're proud to partner with Park Power. Another one is the fact that Chris, the owner there at Park Power, he's in touch with us personally. I love how he rolls. He runs his business just like we do. This guy is in elbows deep, right? And he reaches out and he says, hey, real talkers, a lot of them, especially those that aren't signed up with Park Power right now are going to be opening up their power bills from June and July going, oh, wow. So that's how much it costs to run an air conditioning unit for two straight months. He says these expensive power bills present a great opportunity for consumers to look at their bills and consider protecting themselves from price volatility by switching to a fixed rate offering. Park Power is currently offering flexible fixed rates for electricity on one and three year terms. You get the peace of mind, but you're not locked in. So you want to switch your rate? You want to cancel? No problem. You retain that opportunity and, of course, use the promo code 2021-REALTALK at parkpower.ca. When you take your business over there, you'll save $70 off your first bill. I chatted with Scott yesterday at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge Jeep. I said, hey, what do you want me to remind Real Talkers? What's something he says? Well, first of all, that new Grand Cherokee is on the lot now. Jeep has invested literally billions of dollars into developing this new Grand Cherokee, an absolutely stunning vehicle. What it means is that they've got 2021 Grand Cherokees on the lot ready to roll and they got a clear space. And so you can get a nicely equipped 2021 Grand Cherokee Laredo right now for 46.9. That's 46.9 from the Jeep specialists, Alberta's best Jeep dealers at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge Jeep. Also, big shout out to the team at Westworld Computers at westworld.ca. You can book right now your service appointment or browse their selection. They'll ship anywhere in Canada. You want to consult with an Apple specialist? Why not trust the independent family-owned business that's been doing it for more than four decades online today at westworld.ca. News out of New York today. Big news. Would you, would you say this one was inevitable? We've been using the word inevitable today as part of our coverage. Governor Andrew Cuomo says two weeks from now, he's resigning. I don't know if it was inevitable because he was really digging in. He was. He was digging in saying, hell 
hell no, I'm not going anywhere. Despite President Joe Biden urging him to leave office because he actually, there was a 168 page report written by two independent attorneys and it, it detailed allegations against Cuomo of harassing 11 women. Yeah, this was uh, a story that and and it's got a lot of people talking about a lot of different angles. His brother quit Chris, one of the stars on CNN. I yeah. mean, the fact were you paying attention to that, Sam? Is you nodding there? He's a little bit. Like, yeah. how, how Chris was not covering the story. <laughs> la, la, and then la, it, had, it kind of turned out that Chris had been advising. I don't fault him for that. I don't advise him for I don't, I don't fault him for advising his brother on his response to this. I mean, that's what family members do. Uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But the, I thought that the way that CNN handled it, mm. I don't know about you. Um, I, I was uh, I, I've, name, I've name dropped the strategist twice in one week now. I, they better be name dropping real talk on their podcast, too. Uh, but I thought Corey Hogan was bang on in it on the on the most recent episode, or at least the one I heard most recently saying that CNN um, to preserve journalistic integrity, you got to pull Chris Cuomo off the air. At least, like, you know, you're still getting paid. You're not suspended, but you're sitting on the bench for now because we have to talk about this. Yeah, you got to. I mean, people people tune into Cuomo for sort of that, that, that you know, hard punching analysis of the daily news. It's kind of in that evening time slot there. And, and it's it's too big of a story to ignore. And I mean, Corey Hogan also went on to talk about in this episode, uh, you know, there was a whole string of what right through the pandemic, Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo would be buddying it up on air and like talking about the pandemic response and sort of showing this relationship and and I mean I think that it you know the three of us here have worked in various newsrooms and if somebody in your family was accused of something you step away from that story and you put another reporter in the spotlight to cover it That's or in what any you do. industry yeah in, for in sure any industry you've got I, to absolve yourself from involvement right I think you at least have to acknowledge like I don't know that I don't necessarily agree that he would have to be pulled off the air oh, come on I, I really don't. Talking about allegations of sexual harassment involving He'd, his brother? You I think he's going to do fair interviews? I don't think that he covers it. I think he stays away from it. Yeah. And I think that he acknowledges the reason why they're staying away from it because there is implied, there could be bias. No. No way. I, I got to say I, no I just, way. When you, when you you're have... Say, you're, you're say, that is exactly what he did do. He did stay on the air and he did ignore it. No, I think you don't ignore it. You... You acknowledge it. You you actually like say it outright, directly, frankly. I I cannot, I cannot comment on this. And it's and it's just like when um you know or uh, broadcasters say this we are this is one of our sponsors. We're covering the story, yeah. But these are one of our sponsors, just for transparency. Yeah, it's like when we have Bitcoin well on. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's Bitcoin. Well, I was like, can you please leave us out of the Andrew Cuomo conversation? <laughs> yeah. But when we talk to Bitcoin, well, when we when we welcome Adam on, it's uh, I mean, he's our go to when it comes to or at least one of our go to's when it comes to crypto. Obviously, there's a relationship there, which we disclose. I think this is different. Okay. I think that people look to CNN. D- does James Earl Jones still say the most? Trust- I can't even do. I'm not even going to try it. Never mind. I kind of want you to try. I'm not, I'm, no, I can't do it. It's going to be so bad that I'm not even. Gonna, he's he's got he's got one of the most magnificent voices really in human does. history, uh, but the most trusted name in news. That's been their brand. And I think that you have to you you do your audience a disservice if you simply say we're going to keep our star anchor on and he's just not going to talk about one of the biggest stories in the United States because he's his brother. I think you say I think you do it in an, in an appropriate way. I, we should bring this back to Andrew, not Chris, but in an appropriate way, I think they should have said he's done 
Chris has done absolutely nothing wrong that we're aware of. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even that is kind of a weird way to word it, but they would have someone craft the statement simply to say through no fault of his own, but because of a familial relationship, we can't cover this in the fashion that we know you expect us to approach it. And and so he's going to take a timeout and we're going to bring in a substitute host who's absolutely capable, bring in some, bring in the quote unquote big name, bring in another heavy hitter and say for obvious reasons in the interim, they're going to host in this time slot. Yeah. Uh, oh, there's my mic. There we go. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that it's it's too confusing to have Chris Coma come on and do part of the show and then somebody else come on and do part of the show and, and just like for the clean break because you guys have probably heard the phrase before a perception of a conflict of interest is still a conflict of interest yeah to the public's eye Chris Cuomo is compromised and this story needs to be told and people appointment view that time slot every day for their news so we can't stick our heads in the sand and say people come to CNN at this hour every day to find out what's happening in the world and ignore one of the biggest stories in the US. Mm-hmm. So I, I would agree. Just bench him, bring on another anchor, move on with this story. This Some, might be a little bit inside baseball though. Like we're, t- we're in the media so this kind of fascinates us. This is great. But I like to me it's like Andrew Cuomo is the story. The allegations 100%. by 11 women are to be taken seriously. Yeah. And he needs I'm I'm glad that he has resigned i don't think that there's any choice there's no choice like you know what and but it's you know you take a look at the most recent you know i mean i'm not talking about joe biden i'm talking about 45 you know that former reality tv show host that occupied the uh, the white house for four years and he went to prove donald trump went to prove that if you simply ignore absolute scandal if you simply ignore it or absolutely tell unbelievable, and I don't mean unbelievable, like astounding. I'm talking about literally you cannot. It is not believable if you provide unbelievable uh, replies, uh, if you brush things off, if you simply deny them, if you just lie that ultimately you get out of trouble. I mean, that literally that happened for four straight years. It happened for four straight years, and I wouldn't be surprised if that subconsciously or otherwise influenced Governor Cuomo for the first days or weeks of this scandal. That's what it seemed like. Where if some of his, maybe some of his advisors were literally like, Governor, we think you can ignore it. I mean, unless, unless, I mean, until you're wearing handcuffs, until something's going, until people are pressing charges, until, you know, you're on the front cover of the New York Times in cuffs, maybe we can ride this one out. Yeah, the news cycle moves fast. You know, just wait. The next story will break and you, people will move on. Yeah. Just just stick it out. I can so definitely see that. I, w- I wonder, you know, uh, Melissa DeRosa resigns yesterday as senior aide to the governor. And I wonder if maybe, I mean, you know, once you, like, I would say that there are more factors at play simply than that. But the optics of, uh, and we see this with politicians, you know, we saw, I don't know why Anthony Weiner comes to mind, but you see others, just, I mean, that whole thing. Isn't it? You, you say that guy's name, people just start snickering. It's like because we're all eleven years old when it comes to yep. the jokes around Anthony Weiner. But but once you know uh, people, typically men that are accused of things like this, like a history, an extended history, mm-hmm. you might say habitual or or systemic, whatever word you want to use, a prolonged and extended history of, in this case, allegations of sexual harassment or even sexual assault. Once the senior aides start to go. Uh, again, optics in many cases are reality. 
you may say, well, you know, Ms. DeRosa just didn't want to be part of it or or didn't want to, you know, have to perjure herself or like that's a bad example. But or whatever the case may be, she just didn't want to. She had lost faith in the pro. She wasn't interested in having her name dragged. She wanted to leave. It doesn't matter. doesn't matter why. Maybe she still might support the governor or maybe she's still but she's out of here. doesn't matter. The optics of the senior aides leaving. I mean, this his announcement, uh, as we've been live here this morning on this Tuesday, on August 10th. I mean, his announcement, as it's happened, is less than 24 hours after Melissa DeRosa leaving. So I, I wonder if that might have something to do with it. I think it just gets to the point where it's too much. It's too much of a distraction. Um, obviously, you get to a point where it's dysfunctional, where government cannot function. Part of his address today, he said, given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing. That New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, says he'll resign in two weeks in wake of the sexual harassment scandal. I, well, I think he should have resigned back when long-term care, they were hiding deaths around the long-term care uh, centers and facilities during COVID. So, mm-hmm. I mean, like, when you pick ta- your poison, get out. How, how many how many government elected officials, especially high-profile ones, remember a lot of people, I mean, thank goodness, is, I mean, a lot of people were like, Cuomo should have sought the Democratic nomination. Right. A lot of people wanted him to challenge Joe Biden and everybody else. I mean, can you imagine if this was he's the president of the United States? <laughs> Instead, you've got the president of the United States calling for him to resign. And ultimately he did. So yeah. but you, you just wonder at, at some point, there's such a groundswell that you, you really are left with absolutely no choice. Um, boy, have we covered a lot of ground today. I just looked at the clock and holy smokes, we've been doing this for 131 minutes already. Real talkers have been showing up in spades. I. I got to say, I intended to read more emails today. And, and uh, I mean, hey, you know, I'm going to read one here to close. Uh, but I want to thank everybody that shows up for these conversations, that participates in these conversations. I haven't even looked at our inbox yet, but I guarantee we're going to get a lot of chatter based on what we talked about. If you've enjoyed what you heard today, tell your friends. Uh, maybe smash that like button for us on YouTube. Of course, subscribe to our podcast. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. And uh, we love and really appreciate those of you that take the time to rate and review our podcast. Um, yesterday, we informed you all. We let you know that that Apple Podcast has us number one all time, number, number one, one in all We're time downloads one. for news commentary podcasts in Canada. Uh, just ahead of we don't know just ahead they don't show us that we don't actually know the downloads we just know that we're number one all time which is amazing ahead of Dave Dave Rubin and somebody reached out to me and said oh congratulations on being one ahead of the literally the dumbest guy on the planet I thought "Ooh, those are some scathing words I said well thank goodness we're ahead of him and not behind him but that's because of you real talkers it's because you tell your friends it's because you share our content and we sure appreciate it I want to wrap with an email I want to wrap with one it kind of ties together with a bow this underlying theme that I've alluded to, but not talked much about today. But first, I want to remind you that at landscapeedmonton.ca, you can see the amazing work that's done on a daily basis by the team at Eden Landscaping. We're really proud to partner with them. They've been in business, family owned. This is a, I mean, they've got a lot of crews and they do some big jobs, but this is a small family owned business and we can relate to them to a certain degree. I've, I've dealt with Mike and talked to Mike. Sarah, so have you, you know how much pride he takes in the work that they do. And it's evidenced if you take a look at their portfolio on their website you can see some of the stuff that they've done really cool stuff that 
hey, could fit exactly what you're looking to do, whether it's stunning stonework, they can work in and integrate natural beauty, sort of like geographically specific garden themes, and they can go ultra modern too, as you can see all at landscapeedmonton.ca. A big shout out to our friends at Eden Landscaping. We got this email to talk at ryanjesperson.com just a, a short while ago from Johnny. Johnny says, you know, I heard this uh, quote the other day, and the more that I ruminated on it, that's another word that doesn't get enough credit, ruminating, ruminations. Marinating. Mar- yeah, well, easy. <laughs> I don't even have, I haven't had breakfast. I don't have a lunch here with me. The last thing we're going to do is talk about marinating. I made it through the hatch chilies conversation, okay, but the stomach's going to start rumbling. He says, the more I ruminated on this quote, the more it resonated with me. I, I, I thought it was almost a, a near perfect description of the ideologically driven insanity that has infested all sides of the political spectrum. And I pulled this email. I've got this green folder. Green means go. I've got this green folder here in the studio with about 30 emails printed off that are that are not time sensitive. Ones we could reach in and pull them out at any time and read them. And I went and found Johnny's email right now because of some stuff I'm noticing online. You know, for example, this piece that Danielle Smith wrote take it or leave it, love it or loathe it. I see the criticism around the author online and none of it has anything to do with what she's written. It's just shots at her and her character. Or I see a business in in downtown Edmonton in our home city right now. The business, uh, which is operating out of a a neighborhood that's experiencing transformation, is now procured an apartment building. And they're going to be offering rentals to people and broadening their family-owned business. People are piling on them. Piling because now they're landlords. Now they're part of the problem. Just trying to bury this family-owned business. I see chaos all around. And none of it focused on what maybe the Baptiste family lawyer, what Colton Bushy's family lawyer talked about today. The spirit of conversation and sharing and discussion and meeting in the middle. There's none of it. Or is there? I like to think it happens here every single day. So John shares with us, Johnny, this quote. uh, It's an excerpt from Nameless Season 2. It's an audiobook from famed and best-selling author Dean Koontz. I used to read a lot from Dean Koontz. Haven't much recently. Quote, it seems like everyone has taken up many causes each and spends a lot of time shouting to one another about how virtuous they are without noticing that in spite of all this loud righteousness, Everything's getting worse. Maybe not in spite of it, but because of it. When so many people take so much pride in their rectitude, there's a perilous shortage of humility. Humble people know that no one can know everything, so they're less likely to saddle up and ride off a cliff just because the prideful have agreed their virtue requires everyone to believe that horses can fly. Humility is the mortar of civilization. Johnny says to me, this is a a direct punch to the science denying anti-expert freedom fighters on the far right who think being asked to wear a mask in Walmart is step one on a global communist takeover, as well as the privileged self-congratulatory slacktivists on the far left who feel like they're personally changing the world because they took a break from drinking their fancy $8 coffee to retweet a trendy hashtag. Johnny says the problem with being a centrist is that when you try to explain to either side why their horses can't actually fly, then you're hated by everybody. 
He says a shout out to all the fellow real talkers out there from Johnny, a hopelessly centrist individual. Thanks for that, Johnny. Humility, the mortar of civilization. We're back at it tomorrow. Looking forward to checking in with probably one of the highest profile health commentators in the country, Andre Picard from the Globe and Mail. Says it's past time for vaccine passports. We'll get into that, plus other news of the day as it develops. Thanks in advance for your correspondence with us, for sharing our content. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Same time, same place. One love, Real Talkers. The gun away. Oh